Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Plotlines. I'm your host, Connor. And before we get to the episode, please, if you like what we're doing here at Plotlines, like, share, and subscribe, and join our Discord server if you want to join our community. Today, I have with me Ryan Grant to discuss St. Thomas More and St. John Fisher. Welcome, Ryan. Thank you for having me. It, these two are just very interesting saints to begin with, and today is Moore's death day and feast day, even though his uh, feast, as we just discussed, uh, was, is, is chaotic in history. Um, so what is your sort of, how do I say this? Well, A, do you have a favorite of the two? Um, I guess my favorite is actually Fisher because he's a bit of the underdog because he's sort of a forgotten saint in the whole mess. You even see where in the, uh, the reform calendar, uh, after, uh, in the new mass, he's, they're both on the same day, but yet everyone says happy feast of Thomas More and they forget that Fisher even exists. And yet Fisher was a much better theologian than Moore. Fisher was the one who actually did the active work in defending uh, Catherine's marriage to Henry, whereas Moore kind of sat in the background trying not to get into the middle of it very desperately. So, it, so it's an odd thing where Moore is then put out there as a defender of marriage, and Fisher's the one doing all the work. And, <laughs> and Moore was only killed because uh, he had incurred Anne Boleyn's disfavor by not showing up to her coronation. And so he's first the only layman out of all the bishops of the realm who's ordered to swear to the act of succession. So, which I uh, wouldn't do on account of the preamble, which uh, for formally affirms Anne to be married to Henry and that marriage to be valid and, and Henry's marriage to Catherine to be invalid. And so both Fisher and Moore saw that as, as a uh, denial of papal you know, infallibility, like an implicit one. And so that was the first thing. It's like the act of succession was no problem because, you know, parliament can make, we'll talk about that later. But anyway, so, so Fisher does all this work. He's celebrated as the greatest theologian in Christendom. His work on justification is instrumental at the Council of Trent uh, in terms of formulating their definition. And uh, yet nobody talks about him. So, <laughs> so that's kind of why I, I'm more on the, uh, Fisher is kind of more my favorite. Yeah, it makes sense. Also, it seems to me that Fisher died more for the marriage and uh, Thomas More died more for papal supremacy in sort of indirect case he had incurred henry's wrath for that reason whereas more had not because more had played it safe but at the same time both of them um it, it was it was papal supremacy when it came down to it because it was there was that act of succession and then later the act of royal supremacy which followed it both of which were denials of the papacy so those are the the articles that specifically they both deny so it really is um, you know they, they're both you know executed for the same thing okay i find it most curious that uh, Anglicans uh, consider both of them saints. It's um, yeah, it's an odd thing that came in with the Oxford movement. It, unless I am mistaken, um, I, I'd have to get someone of an Anglican extraction to correct me on that. But I do believe that they their days entered the Book of Common Prayer during uh, sometime in the Oxford movement um, into the Church of England itself, and it was, it was sort of like a like reconciling with ghosts of the past and basically say, yeah, we acknowledge that Henry, Henry was a rotten guy and these two men were holy men, but hey, the Church of England is the, the continuation of this ancient medieval monarchy, which if you believe that, um, I've, you know, I've got, uh, <laughs> got a bridge to sell you and not in London, but, um, but anyway, it's, um, 
you know, versus, I mean, at least, you know, with the Anglo Catholics and the day, they, they have a very specific point about their church, but they're not under any illusions about its origin, you know, yeah. as opposed to that older idea that, oh, the Anglican church goes back to Augustine of Canterbury and more <laughs> would virulently disagree with that as well as Fisher. So, but anyway, that's, it, it's just part of that. Um, and that really comes from the 19th century where the French uh, are, are building in, in neoclassical art. And they're building in uh, classical Roman, uh, you know, designs in their architecture. So Victoria decides, well, we are decidedly not French. So we are going to build in Gothic. And part of that Gothic revival moves hand in hand. It was, it was a movement on its own, but the two really worked hand in hand. The, 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 um, the move to Gothic meant a looking back to England's medieval roots. And those medieval roots were, of course, Catholic even though the queen is quite a low church Protestant, uh, Queen Victoria. So the, uh, the Oxford movement and, and many of the figures in there, both those like Newman who became Catholic and those who did not like Pusey, um, you know, they are both, they're all looking toward that medieval church as Anglicans. And that's, uh, you know, and I think, and that's part of what spurred on, and even the Church of England itself, it spurs on kind of this, this look again at the Reformation. And that's why you see a good number of converts in that period, even Father Faber. You read uh, a diary of Father Faber's uh, where he was traveling in Italy. And he has conversation, he relates conversations. Um, I'm not sure they would have been Ipsissima Verba, but as he remembered them, and just debating with people, debating things about the tutors of Catholic, and he, and he just stops thinking. He, he adds that instead of like some rejoining pro-Protestant response as, as a Protestant minister, Faber simply uh, adds, you know, that he, that he was thoughtful about these things. He's thinking it over, as it were. And then at last, he wrote a little booklet defending Henry VIII's break in Rome, but you can even see by the end of it, he himself can't reason it. He's just trying to finish the book because he's already pretty much on his way to, 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 to Rome. And so, and he does, and then he joins Newman in the oratory, but. Yeah. So Fisher is the older of the two. Um, he uh, And he was both a churchman and would you consider him a statesman? Um, he would not want to be considered a statesman. The every bishop was uh, was a part of the House of Lords in England. So uh, in, in a technical sense, he was as a temporal lord as well as uh, but his business was always the church. And he only um, he did have some you know, role advising Archbishop Warham in the very beginning of Henry's reign. Uh, that was towards the end of, of Henry VII's reign, but not very much. And he, he definitely detested that he preferred to be in his diocese. So Fisher is born in 1469 and October 9th, 1469 in a little town in, uh, near York called Beverly. And it was a merchant town, a lot of woolers, a lot of mercers, a lot of various uh, <clears throat> tradesmen in the town. And it was smack dab in the middle of the Wars of the Roses, the White Rose of Lancaster faced against the Red Rose of York. And that is a contest that actually itself goes back even before uh, Henry V to his father, Henry IV, Henry Bolingbroke. He seizes the crown. And then some of his backers say, you know, we have a better claim to the throne than, than Henry Bolingbroke. So we should <clears throat> be king, actually, not, not him. So they, they revolt. <clears throat> the various houses that with the better claims revolt against Henry. Uh, he fights back. Eventually he dies and his son, Henry V, 
reconciles everybody and says, now let's forget about this. Let's go fight in France. <laughs> and then they, they, they uh, when they're st standing victories and conquer the country and Henry V passes into legend very quickly, actually, because he dies of dysentery uh, not long after and mm -hmm. had leaving behind a one-year-old son just before he could formally obtain the title and be crowned as King of France, because that was part of the treaty. Just mm -hmm. before that, he dies of dysentery. And then his one-year-old son, under his minority, Henry VI, he grows up and he's raised very pious, which actually is very good, except it's not very good for the aristocracy, as that means he doesn't mm -hmm. want to make war and he's not committed to the war in France. And that's when, of course, Joan of Arc appears in so many things that by 1453, the English now are reduced back to Cali. Henry VI now uh, is going through fits of, of insanity, probably brought on by porphyria or other royal diseases. And now he, uh, you know, he is... Uh, you know, in and out, questionable ruler, and his he's lost what the nobility put their blood and sweat into. So once again, the dynastic, uh, you know, complaint appears again, and there's nothing left but to fight for it. So Edward, the Duke of York, versus Henry the Sixth, uh, you know, the king, but now really king of a faction at this point. So they just fight it out. Now, so meanwhile, in all this, John Fisher's born. And so the town he was born in, like I said, it, it was it was too important for either side to uh, to alienate. So there's there's no violation of the town like in some, certain other places in England. So it's largely safe from from the, this whole fratricidal conflict in the background. Fisher, then um, he, there, we don't know a whole lot about his early life, except that uh, he gives a few anecdotes that are at least indicative that he knew something about it. Um, about things like hunting and maintaining dogs for this purpose and and several other things that you know which we can only gather just by um, you know limited glimpses he gives in sermons of material that he could not have known from being a bishop and, and it's just a, a safe assumption that he had some working in these things as a child mending nets and other things of this sort so but he was very bright and he went to one of many free monastic schools at the time which were teaching grammar and what, what that meant was you would learn Latin. And so the medieval trivium, as it were, which is based on a Roman system of education and persisted throughout the Middle Ages, uh, where you learned Latin grammar. And, and so you learned, you know, basically to, to speak. Then you learned logic, which is how to speak correctly. And then you learned rhetoric, which is how to sound very good while doing the other two. <laughs> and uh, to, to put it simply. And he was very good at that and very bright. So his father dies, his mother remarries, and, and so his stepfather then sees to finishing his education, and he's sent to Cambridge. And so he takes his degrees at Cambridge and, you know, quickly, you know, gets his bachelor's and his master's, and then is ordained to the priesthood, and he had to get a dispensation. It's actually one of the reasons why we know the year he was born, is because he had to rece um, receive a dispensation prior to, he was because he was below the canonical age. Right. And so the uh, so that helps us trace his dates more correctly. Um, so then, you know, he's made a priest <clears throat> and he starts beginning his duties. And he was clearly a very holy priest in those days. If you went to university and took your degrees and you were, you were very good at Latin, you had one of two options. You went into church or you went into state service. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, it's a lot of people who went into church service were not necessarily uh, following a vocation. A lot of times it was simply just as a door to open to, to money and power if you were witty enough and crafty enough we'll see that for example cardinal woolsey had um you know takes that route of it fisher on the other hand truly does have a devotion we can see um 
through his life, through his sermons, through the things he does, he has a very clear, deep sense of the holiness and what his duty is as a priest. So, um, and we'll pause with him at Cambridge because what happens in the meantime is the War of the Roses had come to a conclusion and Edward IV, the, the Duke of York was victorious and now becomes Edward IV. And I'm going to, I could talk about War of the Roses again for probably a you know, whole day podcast. We're not mm-hmm. going to do that. Um, Maybe so he one is day. now, you know, king and he's gifted with an heir and a spare, right? He's got two sons. Perfect. Um, <clears throat> so it seems like he's going to be very much in control uh, of things, except um he mysteriously dies and nobody knows why um one of his brothers he had to have killed for revolting against him um even at that time contemporaneously suspicion fell on his other brother richard and so richard then becomes the guardian of his two sons the princes of the tower and is more or less the regent the two princes are put in the tower for safety and they die under mysterious circumstances Thomas More, in his treatise on Richard III, which is written in Latin, I'm sure there's a translation of it somewhere, I, I, I'm not sure, um, which was largely a vehicle for him to express political opinions. He decided to shelve it, lest it get too toxic and uh, get, get him in trouble. Um, <laughs> and so, But he alleges there that Richard III had the princes of the tower smothered, uh, strangled with a pillow. And so it, it, and that, that's, that was the common view, actually, even during Richard's time. So one thing he didn't, Richard didn't count on. So he becomes Richard III and the widow of Edward IV, uh, whose children have just been murdered. And she certainly believes they've been murdered. Um, she mm. shows hell knoweth no fury like a woman scorned. She goes to the other side, to the last remnant of the Lancastrian house, Lady Margaret Beaufort. Now, Margaret Beaufort, uh, during the period of the beginning stages of the War of the Roses, was married to a man named Owen Tudor. And she was, uh, you know, a noble Shion of the Lancastrian sign, going back to John of Gaunt and all that. And, you know, she was very young. He married her. And so she was, I think, 12 when she conceived with uh, the young Henry, you know, Tudor. And wow. of course, and it was, I mean, it was, 12 was the, this is very shocking for modern people. 12 was the youngest legally permissible age for carnal knowledge. Uh, to, 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 to know your wife, but it was not customary. Um, the people normally didn't do that. Normally you waited until she was 14. You would be older uh, again, as a man, right? Modern people also. What's that? You would be older than as a man versus if you were a woman. Oh, right? oh certainly. Uh, as a man, you'd be anywhere from 16 to, um, you'd be anywhere from 16 to 30, maybe even 40. Um, which, again, didn't bother people in those days, even though we find it positively horrific and for good reason. But uh, so typically, though, you would not have carnal knowledge. Usually a betrothal would happen at 12 and you wouldn't have carnal knowledge until uh, 14. That was what was more customary. Right. Because it was it was just seen 12 was still questionable whether puberty had happened it was it was not it was more for making alliance the reason it was legally permissible is if you're married well you're married so it was meant basically for purposes of betrothal and other purposes and that was the uh the reason for that again absolutely shocking to to our modern habits and for good reason but in those times wasn't bothering and of course it's all done with a venal and accommodating church accommodating the crown henry the sixth at the time so Margaret Beaufort has, you know, young Henry Tudor. Her husband dies, she remarries, but she never conceives again. 
So as the fortunes, uh, you know, favor the Yorkist in, in the War of the Roses, Henry is sent into exile in Brittany. And his first language was probably French. He spent most of his life in France. And he uh, and now what happens, though, uh, you know, right around the time of Bosworth is Elizabeth Woodville uh, comes to uh, Margaret Beaufort. And she promises that if she will, if Margaret Beaufort will bring her son back from exile, and he defeats Richard. She will give her daughter, Elizabeth, to Henry as a bride and will unite the houses of York and Lancaster. And that will make, you know, bring a permanent end to the war and she'll be avenged. Uh, so that's precisely what happens. And Henry comes with the French army and very much the connivance of the French court to, uh, to England with an army. And because Richard III was so loath, there's a lot of societies that want to say, hey, Richard III wasn't that bad. Henry the Tudor, I'm sure Henry III was actually a scoundrel in, in his reign. But, um, you know, but Richard III, it was very much hated to the point where a lot of the nobility step aside and watch to support the victor rather than taking part in the battlefield with Richard. So with the help of the French pikemen and Henry's pay, Richard is defeated at the Battle of Bosworth and Henry Tudor becomes king, Henry VII from that point on. And it's curious too, because Margaret Beaufort had, it was a queen in her own right, technically, but she <clears throat> steps aside for her son, of course, but this, this fact made living with um, the younger Elizabeth Woodville very hard because mm -hmm. uh, you know she's the queen but Margaret Beaufort technically has the claim to be queen too. And so, and the two of them did not get along. But anyway, so, so Henry then, the seventh then begins the reign. Um, he's, he's very cosmopolitan. He's been abroad in his multilingual, uh, but he decides to run England rather more like how Francis run. And this causes a lot of problems. He wants to crush every last strain of the Yorkist side. Because, of course, there's another revolt. There's you got the, the instance of Perkin Warbeck, for example, who's a Flemish clothing merchant that some of the Yorkists say, hey, he looks a lot like one of the princes of the tower. So they put him up as a fake ah. prince pretender uh, to, to uh, rise up against Henry, whose claim was, in fact, very tenuous, I might add. Henry VII's claim. So he was open to these kind of challenges. And so Henry becomes very brutal. He uses taxation to crush so much of the, of the nobility and get them into line. And so, and he continues, of course, the, the state domination of church for the better part of his reign. Uh, so in the midst of this, uh, so John Fisher is a priest now, and he's established at Cambridge, and he's the, the master of Michael House, which is his duties to teach uh, younger boys and undergraduate and preach. And so during this course, there, there's always these fights between universities in the local towns or the local cities where they're the same thing in Oxford and other, other great universities where the cities are mad because of rowdy students or encroaching upon various lands or leases not being paid and, and what have you. And so the university and the towns are fighting each other. And so they decided to send a, a delegation down to see the king to advocate for the rights of Cambridge in the dispute. And one of those sent was John Fisher. And on this uh, particular you know, trip, he happens to, to meet Lady Margaret Beaufort, who is the, uh, the, the queen mother. And so she is uh, impressed, beyond impressed with Fisher because of his holiness and his learning and, and his, his sense and brilliance, intelligence. And so she makes him her confessor. And uh, while, while she, you know, under her, his direction, you know, she starts hearing mass four times a day. She devotes herself to whenever she's not busy hearing mass, she's making translations from French. She single-handedly funds the printing press 
coming to England as it hadn't come to England yet. Uh, Caxton was his name who sets up the first printing press. And so under Fisher's direction, you know, she becomes a consecrated, uh, she becomes a celibate the rest of her life. She makes a vow of, um, of uh, chastity for the rest of her, her life and uh, devotes herself basically to, to, to mass and prayer and alms and learning. And so she uh, distributes a lot of royal money, you know, with Fisher's direction on various projects for the benefit of the church. One of those is establishing a, a school of preachers, as it were. Now, there's like a, a myth that, oh, yeah, medieval people, they didn't know the Bible and they, they, they <laughs> didn't know anything because they were all illiterate. Um, they didn't read because they were illiterate and they were illiterate because the economy of the time did not allow for the proliferation of books. So in turn, there's no demand for literacy because there's no possibility you're going to get your hands on a book unless you're very wealthy because they're all copied out by hand. The printing press brings that price down a good bit, but not all the way. Books are still very expensive. They're, they're, they're a work of craft and they're sewn and bound in vellum typically, which is... Um, calf skin or, 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 or sheep, sheep skin sometimes. And then that's labor intensive. You know, it's about a hundred man hours to produce just a few sheets of vellum, right? And so it a really complicated, uh, very disgusting <laughs> process um, because of, you know, you'd have to be saving up urine to use uh, for the ammoniates in it in order to use that to, to soak the, um, the hide and then scrape off gradually all the hair off the, uh, the, the, the calf's hide. And then, or the cow's hide, or what have you, and then just continue with that whole process until you've tanned essentially this nice soft sheet of, of leather that now can be written on. Or in this case, it was it was a very delicate one for wrapping around the boards that would make your book, right? And so, and, that, and that's how things worked in those days. So the um, uh, very comp, very expensive, and as a result, you know, there's no demand for literacy because you couldn't afford a book. So how did people know the Bible? People actually knew the scripture better than probably any subsequent age, except I would say the 19th century, because they had, well, the, the usual explanation is they had stained glass windows, they had paintings, they had pictures, they had statues. That was only part of it. These kind of form of this Biblia pauperum, as it were, poor man's Bible, but it was the preaching that brought all of these images to life. It wasn't just the image itself. It was the preacher who brought these images to life and uh, frequent references that you can find, uh, graffiti, other things, all, they all demonstrate a, a good knowledge of the content of the history of scripture, as well as in private devotion, the knowledge of Psalms, whether in Latin or in English. People knew these things. So they had a very solid knowledge of the content of the Bible and its meaning because it was open for them by preaching. But one of the things that had happened in the 15th century and actually even before is the corruption in, in the Episcopate, Episcopal absenteeism, bishops are hanging out in court in some great city looking for favors, or in Rome, looking for favors from the Pope, and any excuse to not do the work in their diocese, and, uh, but yet they'd have the money from their diocese to live on while they were abroad, and which meant that nobody was <clears throat> really managing their diocese very effectively. And as a result, <clears throat> people were being brought to orders who did not have the capacity to preach. They were not receiving the faculty to it. And unless you had a steady supply of religious orders nearby who specialized in preaching, you didn't get preaching, maybe an advent and a mission in Lent. And, and that would be about as much as you got. So this was a huge problem for the education of the people. And it's one that Margaret Beaufort thought she would rec uh, remedy with John Fisher. <clears throat> and several other priests of his choosing. He would go about preaching in the country in different places. Fisher would 
set down in a field and begin uh, preaching on various subjects. One, of course, that we have in pr uh, today published is the his, his commentary in the seven penitential psalms. Um, which is very good. He uses a lot of allusions, even to classical antiquity, which uh, the way he uses them show they were known to the people in some capacity. And again, again, the scriptural references, the histories, they all show that people had some knowledge of the scripture <clears throat> because of the way he said, he wouldn't just say it, um, it would be pointless to just reference a name and reference an event if the people had no knowledge of the event. Right. And so you could assume a wide knowledge of many of these events and reference them again, opening them up <clears throat> toward Christ and toward the, uh, you know, the virtues they needed to obtain or what have you. And so the, it was a marvelous effect and he showed himself marvelously talented in this and actually he was a famous preacher and he would preach all his days. Uh, in fact, the court would use him into great effect uh, for that. But um so then Henry VII, towards the end of his reign, uh, the Diocese of Rochester opens up. Rochester was a very small diocese, not far from London. And <clears throat> it was a stepping stone, as it were, to getting better, more plum jobs. And that's how, how it was viewed. So nobody took its administration terribly seriously. <clears throat> Excuse me. Fisher, on the other hand, uh, looks at that as, as his sacred office to do his utmost for this diocese. Now, there's a debate in the, hist in the historical sources here whether Fisher refused any promotion in order to be devoted specifically to this diocese. The early biographer suggests this, and um, uh, T.E. Bridget in his very first biography of Fisher uh, repeats that, but other biographers aren't sure. Uh, the, the thought is it's spurious in that Fisher may very well have taken promotions, except later in, uh, in Henry VIII's reign, he's blocked by Wolsey because uh, Fisher was uh, not suitably corrupt enough to move up. <laughs> uh, so, because he was too too holy essentially for the job and yeah. and, and I, I think that's rather insoluble which one it is mm -hmm. but um given his holiness that that he wouldn't take a, a plumber job in order to devote himself to the poor diocese that is a very at least very plausible uh, i mean if we can't settle that for certain so <clears throat> the uh then the next thing that happens, so he takes the diocese. People think that, well, Lady Margaret Beaufort just got her chaplain made bishop. So Henry VII actually writes a letter to a courtier explaining that, no, um, I've done a lot bad in my reign, and I have observed Fisher's holiness and his goodness firsthand, and so I'm looking to remedy so much some of this, the, the evil I have done by appointing such men as bishops. Was well, he being really given sincere the, with that? Like what? Uh, I think he of... was, actually, that, that he was sincere in... in uh, trying to to remedy some of some what he had done and so you know he'd given uh, substantial grants to cambridge where fisher was uh, also still a very important person and then later he would rise to be the very chancellor of cambridge itself you know the, the university of cambridge the uh, which is actually it's ironic too because that's also where a, a lot of the protestantism in the country is hatched but we'll talk about that later yeah it fisher it seems, then oh yeah it, go ahead, you have a question it, yeah no it just seems to me that most people um, have trouble understanding that people who do these bad things, especially leaders like this, uh, will ever come to a sort of um, place in their life where they decide that they want to do better. Um, I think, so do you think our instincts there are normal or, or do you think we've been corrupted by that? It's hard to say. People are, sometimes people who are bad know to do the right thing. 
uh, Christ himself alludes to this in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, who among you would give, uh, you know, give a serpent when your child asks for a fish? Uh, and if you who are evil know how to give good things, how much more your father is in heaven, right? Um, you know, people who have mixed, uh, complicated lives, messy lives, um, it doesn't mean that they have no desire whatsoever. So Henry VII is cruel and he's <clears throat> parsimony, or, you know, he's, uh, what's the right word? He's stingy with money. He's, he's looking to get as much wealth as he possibly can. Uh, he knows the price of everything and everyone. <clears throat> he's very cynical. Um, but at the same time, he still has certain instincts that are very pious. His mother, of course, is, is very holy. So he looks at at the rain as uh, oh, I've done these things. Yeah, I probably shouldn't have done that. And, you know, maybe that I was too harsh here and who knows moments of soul searching or, well, this had to be done for the realm, but <clears throat> you know, the, I need to do something good for the church. And, and sometimes people who are very mixed, they have an instinct for what is right in certain things and the, and they'll do it. Um, you know, a man who's, who's very positively wicked um, will still take his daughter out to do something you know nice to make her happy <clears throat> so it's uh the uh you know, so it's just because um you know he, he'd been a a miserly and, and a miserable king in some respects doesn't mean that that he didn't see something good that had to be done so it's entirely plausible um and so and i think i don't think he would have written if um to because the thing is like there's a real etiquette and a protocol you have to follow um lying explicitly like that is it, like in <clears throat> in a written way anyway is seen as unbecoming of a king a king's not supposed to go back on his agreements because they're supposed to be sacred because he's anointed he's an anointed person a king's not supposed to become overly familiar with commoners because he is the king a king is not supposed to be um that's the right word to you know going low with insults and responding to insults because it's beneath his dignity right so that's uh you know so that's another thing i don't think henry the seventh would have actually written to dispel that if you know if he didn't feel the need to so it, it seems to me probably he may have even intended to promote fisher higher you know we'll never know because mm -hmm. when what happens in uh, 1509 is henry the seventh dies <clears throat> now, to backtrack a little bit for the Tudor reign, Henry has two sons. One is named Arthur, and the other, of course, the younger Henry. Arthur is a very conscious name choice. It's not anywhere in the family or in recent kings. It's hearkening back to the legends of King Arthur, which is so much of Wales and Welsh, you know, the, the stronghold where the historical Arthur may have lived and where in those times it was very much believed he did live was in Wales. And so... Uh, Henry's court moves very quickly to Wales in order that Arthur should be born there. Uh, and so he was raised in Pembroke Castle. He was given a kingly education there. They have the round table, or what they think is the round table, which is set up by Edward the, the Third. And really? they, um, and, and which Edward the Third claims then is, is the ancient round table they had discovered. And so they truly believed it was the round table, even though we know it was not. So, but it you know, fit in with the lore and the legend and it has so much to making the legend of kingship. So Arthur is very much has the notion of a restoration and of something that is very distinctly English. And that's something with the Tudors. It, the Tudors were, Henry V was the first monarch that spoke English. 
The Tudors were the first English dynasty that made English the language of the court. A lot of people don't realize that. It's complete bubkiss, uh, that line at the end of Shakespeare. But Shakespeare had no way to know this, of course, from his standpoint in time. But when he has in the in the the end of the play, Henry V, that he can't speak to Catherine because she's speaking in French and he doesn't know French. It's nonsense. Henry V's first language was French, right? Anglo-Norman, right? But but not unintelligible to, to the continental <laughs> French. And, and that he had to learn English second. And that was the way all the English kings actually spoke French. The whole nobility was French. And so that even until the, the 1649, the uh, the Star Chamber, the King's Court, was conducted in Anglo-Norman. It was conducted in French. And so if you were a lawyer who practiced at the, in the Star Chamber, you had to know Anglo-French. Otherwise, uh, you, you couldn't <laughs> practice. You didn't know. We even have an echo of this in our Supreme Court, which draws on these various traditions of the Anglo-Norman. Whenever the, the bailiff comes out and it, and it cries, ouye, 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 that's not even continental French. That's Norman Anglo-Norman French. Right, hear ye, hear wow. ye, hear ye. It's what that means, mm -hmm. and it's very much in its medieval spelling and everything. So the uh, so these are some of those traditions that 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 uh, come back. So Henry the Seventh, anyway, is Arthur, and he decides he gets very much involved with the Habsburgs. Uh, Henry uh, gives a lot of money to Maximilian the First, and this is actually a bit of knowledge I've only come across recently. I was really? listening to a historian talk about it, and I've been digging into some of the journals and the writings on this subject. And it's interesting, the Tudor connection to the Habsburgs is very strong. It's something that has not been studied very well before. But Henry, because uh, Maximilian the First is the Holy Roman Emperor at the time, he's always running out of money because he's got grand designs. He's trying to live like a Renaissance prince. He's a, in a, but the, his position doesn't afford him enough money. And of course, making constantly making war against the against the French, against the French in Italy, watching his borders against the Turks. Uh, it all costs a lot of money, and he starts hiring mercenaries, Lansknechts. <coughs> Excuse me which literally means uh, foot knights or land knights uh, that were connect. You can see to the, the medieval pronunciation of the English knight connect, right? Uh, they were founded by a man named Martin von Frusberg, who's known as the, the, fa the father of the Lance Connects. He was one of um, uh, Maximilian the first, you know, agents. And, and so it is forming a core of private military that fought on the Swiss model with Pike and shot. Um, and they were very, became very expensive because they realized, hey, them, them blue bloods, they need us and they need to pay us a good deal. Otherwise, we're not going to fight. So Maximilian's always running out of money. And he's related. His son is uh, Duke Philip the Good of the Netherlands. And his, uh, you know, he's got, uh, you know, he's married to uh, Juana, Juana La Loca. It was known as one of the mad. She's the first daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain. And there's a, you know, a relationship forms between them all. And so uh, to, to add in, to the buy-in to the Habsburg dynasty, Henry VII betrothes his son Arthur to the youngest daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella, Catherine of Aragon. And so they, they are duly married. And Henry uh, you know, is uh, young, but uh, you know, as soon as he sees her, he's, he's madly in love with her. This beautiful Spanish princess of uh, in the, the whole idea of a Spanish princess. You know, all his romantic tales. Because Henry now is not given the same training that um, his older brother Arthur is receiving. He is not expected to be a king because he's the spare. In Margaret Beaufort's Book of Hours, she has a calendar where she's written. Uh, and you can still observe this in the British Library. 
she has a book of hours that uh, has the dates when important things happen. So 1492 is, is Henry's date. And she has it crossed out and replaced because, you know, originally it was Henry, uh, Duke of York. Now she has to change. She goes back and changes it once Arthur dies to change it, to scribble it out and write instead, uh, you, know, you know, King Henry, Prince of Wales was born because he was not meant to be a king. He was meant to be the spare. And so he's raised with his sisters. His mother teaches him how to write. His very first, uh, you know, education was given by his mother. He's growing up on nightly tales, romantic tales. He's preparing for the joust. When uh, Perkin Warbeck and the, this, uh, the pretender, pretending to be uh, Richard, Duke of York, comes up with his Welsh army, largely, he, uh, <clears throat> you know, Henry is, is placed in the tower for safekeeping. And then he is, uh, his father decides to create him as Duke of York and formally induct him as a knight. And this fits in perfectly with these romantic, uh, you know, adventures he has in reading, <coughs> excuse me, and, and saving fair ladies and, and what have you. Now he is truly a knight um, commissioned to be made a, a true Duke of York against the counterfeit Duke of York, right? And so, and this is how he's raised his upbringing. And John Fisher is actually brought in to help Henry VIII with his Latin. And Henry actually is a very good linguist. He's fluent in Latin, in Spanish, in French. He's taught, he's very proud of the fact that he's taught French by an actual Frenchman. And so he speaks very good continental French. Um, and we know Henry enjoyed writing in French. He uh, actually love letters to Anne Boleyn were written in French, um, which uh, the ones that are at the Vatican, actually, we'll get to that. There's a story. About <laughs> so <clears throat> the, um, they're in the Vatican Library. I've seen them before, actually. That's um, funny. The, but the... Um, you know, the key is so Henry is his all around Renaissance prince. So then tragedy strikes, Arthur dies. And it's uh, not known why he died. And of course, then there's the question of whether or not the marriage was consummated. And this is all very confusing for modern people because the church doesn't treat this the same way. But if you are uh, an in law, it is within the rank of consanguinity by law. Now, so your kinship, your kin by law not by fact, but it doesn't matter. It's treated precisely the same. So marrying your brother's wife is like marrying your sister in a certain way. <laughs> uh, and so you need it, but it's only in law. So therefore, because it's in law, it can be dispensed. And that's the, the issue that will come up, of course. Was she truly his brother's wife or was the marriage not consummated and therefore not valid? And this is something that will come up during the, the King's Great Matter. Um, when, and here's the other thing that happens as well. So, so uh, Henry VII had to seek a, a dispensation from Julius II in order for Henry to marry uh, Catherine. And he's already setting up that betrothal to keep that Spanish arrangement going. But then Isabella does not like the language in the bull that recognizes her as a, a princess dowager is having actually been married and having actually consummated the marriage. And so she seeks a bull from Julius II, Pope Julius II, that would say that Catherine was in fact a virgin still. And he grants it to add. And of course, uh, there's no investigation that's done for this. It's merely on the assertion of, a, of one of the greatest monarchs in Christendom at the time. And, and he puts it in. And so whether or not it's true, I, um, I do take Catherine's side, but whether or not 
you know, that was actually consummated or not, it's questionable. Um, and we'll, we'll delve into that towards the end. So anyway, so Henry VII kind of, you know, starts dragging his feet, not sure if he's going to, you know, allow this marriage to happen. He's kind of souring on the whole Spanish thing, uh, thinking about maybe allying with the French, who knows. And then uh, he dies. And his reign comes to an end, and Henry sets aside three years of, of torturous negotiation in but three days, and manages to get all the necessary, um, you know, things in order, and marries Catherine, and for love. And so, in 1509, the coronation, uh, Henry decides to have a joint coronation. It's a great parade. Unfortunately, it rains on them uh, as they're going. But um, it, it, it goes around, and as it swings around the London boroughs toward the London borough of Cheapside, a young lawyer for the London uh, in a boroughs begins to address Henry, and speaks uh, of the, the the passing away of our slavery which is actually very daring because he's basically uh, commenting negatively on his father's reign. But fortunately, he knew his man because Henry was very pleased by that. And this lawyer continues that uh, we're entering a new golden age, now begins a time of joy for our king does not love gold and jewels. And indeed, look at our queen who is going to be the mother of kings, as in she's going to be very bounteous and very fruitful. Um, and, and this reign is going to be, you know, a new age for a golden age for England. Well, he's wrong on both counts. And this man, <laughs> sir, or not sir yet, but Thomas More. Now, More was born in 1478, about 10 years after Fisher. Also during the reigns of Richard III and then later uh, the, the Henry Tudor. More was, um, you know, lived in, an, in, in London Borough uh, by Bucklesbury. And he lived in a place called the Barge because you had to take a barge to get to it. It was formerly a, uh, a grocer's building that had gradually been annexed and various parts of it turned into lodging. And so it, uh, some of which is kept open to be a great hall. Uh, there's, there's actually descriptors for it not too long after Moore's death. And so we have a good idea of what it looked like when Moore lived there. But um, and so we don't know a whole lot about Moore's very early life. Except again, he would have received the same education as John Fisher. His father, John Moore, was a lawyer, also sheriff's undersecretary. Uh, he had gone to different positions in the court. Eventually, would would make it to the king's bench as a judge uh, prior to his death. So, so he raised his son to also go into law. And Moore, for a time, uh, became very attached attorneys. He started learning Greek. Now, Greek was very much a new study. It had been lost after the fall of the Roman Empire through the Middle Ages. Uh, the knowledge of Greek gradually passes away outside of Italy, and then even in Italy itself. And so you have, uh, it comes back during the period of the Renaissance, and one of the catalysts for spreading the, <clears throat> the, the knowledge of the Greek language around Europe was the fall of Constantinople, which brought many Greek scholars over to Italy in order to make to, to earn their bread, teaching young Italian humanist Greek. And, and that uh, one of the things that spurs on much of the humanist movement. So Moore learns Greek and becomes absolutely devoted to his reading and writing and translating Greek poetry all the time. And his father's like, knock that off, get back to law. Uh, eventually, you know, it, it works, you know, upon him. Uh, his father married love, I think about four times, if I'm not mistaken. And it was um, a, a common thing, but it was new for the, for the middle class to be doing this, marrying a lot of rich widows to try to advance his career. 
And <laughs> uh, he got more than he bargained for when he married Joan Marshall, who was very much um, a, a very fiery woman, ill-tempered, and uh, uh, made him pay for <laughs> he wanted to use her, her, her money and her dowry. So as uh, John Moore. So Thomas rises up and he is very brilliantly trained. He goes to Oxford um, in a, in a, in a, takes his, it takes his degrees, I believe, um, 1498, if I'm not mistaken. And so and he spends some time with the Cartusians and he, to test his vocation. And he discerns that oh, this is not actually where I'm supposed to go. There's actually a long running debate of whether he was a third order Franciscan. The Franciscans claim him and they have him <laughs> on their calendar as a third order Franciscan. Really? Actually, and they hold his feast today. The... Mm -hmm. um, it's highly doubtful historically how it seems that Moore did have some involvement, but he was not formally enrolled in any any uh, accounts of the time. It could be lost. It's true. And so there's a debate about whether he really was a third order Franciscan. But nevertheless, there was a decree from the uh, Congregation of Saints, which lists him as the third order Franciscan. So there he is, whether he was or not. <laughs> <laughs> if I always notice the Franciscans are always pulling in anybody they can. Somebody who once heard a Franciscan preach, but died as a Benedictine. It's on their calendar as a, as a lay Franciscan. So, I mean, <laughs> That's funny. but anyway, it's uh, nevertheless. So Moore gets married and, you know, begins his, his law practice, as well as uh, humanist studies. And he has a great circle around him. His very young wife, Joanna, uh, gives him, you know, all his children, his oldest daughter, Margaret, um, et cetera, down to his, his younger son, John. Uh, and, and he has a, quite a circle around him. One of the biggest things that happens is uh, Erasmus of Rotterdam comes to England and, and makes Moore's acquaintance. So Erasmus... Um, He's a very colorful figure, very interesting figure. I, and again, we could do a whole podcast on Erasmus, and so I've got to cut it short. But Erasmus is somebody who shouldn't exist. Word from our affiliate, Bishop Sheen Rosaries. You've probably worn through the chain of your cheap plastic rosary. Other rosaries simply can't stand up to the wear and tear of everyday life. Bishop Sheen Rosaries are made of solid metal beads and paracord to withstand any condition and are backed with a lifetime warranty. Upgrade your rosary to a Bishop Sheen rosary made to fit your lifestyle or buy one for a friend. Each rosary sold supplies two weeks of food for a school kid in Uganda. You use the exclusive link down below to help support our efforts here at Plotlines. The link will take you to sheenrosaries.com. Be sure to use the code PLOTLINES10. So Erasmus is the son of a priest, and so he's somebody that should not exist. And as a result, he's sent off to the monastery and where he's raised, he becomes very brilliant in Latin. He's very entrepreneurial. He's enterprising and he becomes a humanist scholar. He escapes the monastery to become a secretary of Latin letters um, in Paris. And then he starts working at the university and getting on various projects, editing any works, getting uh, works from manuscript into print of the church fathers, classical writers. And, and that was a, a big thing at that time. And of course, editing and correcting a manuscript, getting uh, getting these things to be accurate, right? This this is so much the work, and so he became very much a humanist. And one of the things, so humanists looked in in two two ways: one, to that ancient age of Greece and Rome, as as it's close to perfection as you could get without the light of the gospel, and so to recover towards the perfection of what man can do, aided by God's grace. It's very different from modern day secular humanism. 
And the second thing was very much ad fontes, as it were, going back to the sources, the sources of Greece and Rome in literature, in writing, and also in the church amongst the early church fathers. So you have uh, writers in Italy who are doing this, like Lorenzo Valla, for example, and some of them are very skeptical about certain elements of church teaching. And they looking back in the early church, they, well, hey, this means this, not this. <clears throat> the Greek says this. And so like one example is in the Gospel of Luke. The Vulgate says to do penance, but the Greek says turn your life around, literally. And so which is translated in Latin as penitemony, and then, you know, do penance. <clears throat> and it becomes very much in commentaries, the basis of, of the church's system of penances and so many things. So the humanists are trying to challenge that by saying, well, look, it doesn't say do penance. It says change your life. I mean, none of that really undergirds, undercuts the church's uh, teaching on doing penance, but they thought it did. And they thought they had a good argument there. <clears throat> so, mm -hmm. um, and, and so they would in, write and comment on these things and make arguments against various things based on, again, going to Fontes, right? Not unlike uh, the Ressourcement movement in the 30s, which is a similar type of idea on Fontes, where they're, again, trying to undercut so much of church teaching by going back to the sources, as it were, but oftentimes actually cherry picking the sources for their own particular interest in, in, in moves and or, or introducing doubt where there's actually certainty, where the church has decreed something. But then this one obiter dicta in this, in this Greek father is this, so therefore we don't know. Uh, you do, actually, <laughs> and you're an idiot, but uh, these guys are celebrated as the most wonderful people, so you can't criticize them. Anyway, so I'm going to leave off of that before I get you canceled, um, <laughs> especially, especially if you're talking about Daily Bach. I'm not going to talk about him. Um, let's get back to Erasmus, who is doing you know similar things to that. Erasmus has this idea of a pure Christianity getting back to the early church. Let's get rid of all scholasticism. Let's wipe it off the map. And let's go back to the church fathers, make Origen the chief of all church fathers and every, you know, and then follow that. And he had received a lot of criticism, rightly so, because the argument was, well, wait, the, the scholastic, you know, for especially in Leuven and other places that, uh, wrote, you know, debated Erasmus on this subject. And they said, well, the, the scholastics labored on problems, which the church fathers had never thought about. You can't throw them all out, right? Uh, Erasmus writes a number of things, and that's why the, the joke is that Erasmus laid the egg that Luther hatched, and so that, that a lot of his criticism and questioning of the church, Erasmus did not believe the papacy was a divine institution, for example, he believed it was a human institution, which was necessary for ordering the church, but was not actually divine, and very much needed reform, and which is true enough that it needed reform, but, um, and so he, he, uh, while he's teaching in, in Paris and in Leuven, he meets one uh, Lord Mountjoy, um, oh, I can't remember his first name, Lord Blount uh, is the Lord Mountjoy. He comes over, he brings Erasmus with him over to England. Erasmus, of course, is always in need of money. And to meet the, the higher, wealthier circle that is in uh, England. And so in, and as he meet, in 1499, he meets Thomas More and a second trip to England. And they become fast friends and talking very late into the night. The young Henry VIII, when he's about eight years old, um, you know, more is a familiar of the court. And this is the first time he meets Henry when, when Henry is about eight. And he, you know, go, goes to a, a, a birthday party for the young Henry and brings Erasmus along. And he failed to tell Erasmus that it was a birthday party and he needed to provide a gift. <laughs> so the young Henry VIII writes Erasmus a note challenging him to for some verses from his pen, which Erasmus labors on very mightily and uh, presents to him. 
and then doesn't get a present for his trouble. <laughs> and that's the first introduction of Erasmus to Henry as well as, as Thomas More. <laughs> so, so the two become friends, but More's legal work, you know, takes him out and about. So then you know, Margaret More could remember, you know, remembered Erasmus, you know, kind of laboring about the house. He only speaks, uh, you know, uh, Dutch and German. And uh, More uh, only you know, doesn't speak those. And so they have to talk in Latin. And his wife, therefore, cannot, you know, communicate with him all. So Erasmus is just kind of busying about. He's mad that his books haven't showed up from Italy and all these things. But he's getting free <laughs> room and board at Moore's house. And then another fellow shows up named Ammonio, an Italian humanist, eventually gets a job as Henry VIII's Secretary of Letters. But he's also hanging around uh, quite a bit around Moore's house. And so the, uh, you know, in, in, for free room and board, right? So Moore continues, uh, you know, for a good time, uh, doing his jobs and uh, he also trains and educates his daughter which is unusual for for men of that time and he makes sure that that they're trained with also a brilliant humanist education and of course it's funny his daughters take to it and become better scholars than his son his son is taciturn it's not really interesting he does become a lawyer but he's not a great scholar which is much yeah. to more chagrin <laughs> rather <laughs> but he very much loved his daughters and then tragedy strikes his wife dies uh, Joanna, after and not too long after the birth of their son John, um, it was probably influenza. Although uh, typhoid couldn't be ruled out or dysentery, um, probably wasn't the plague or the sweating sickness because this fellow Ammonio, who was um, basically uh, you know living high in the hog and Moore's dime, he would have been out of there. <laughs> if it was yeah. um, so, and he has the indecency to stick around. This this Italian Erasmus was out, you know, at Oxford. <laughs> And had moved on to Cambridge, which we'll get to. That's how he meets John Fisher. But uh, so more than you know is is in mourning is a terrible tragedy um, for for Margaret, uh, especially you know she has to you know she's a little girl, and then you know there's her her mom <laughs> going you know six feet into the ground, and more does very much like his father. Uh, he marries within a month, and the woman he marries is Alice Middleton. So like a lot of rich heiresses, Middletons were, um, you know, merchant class and, you know, they, they had a lot of wealth and possessions. And so a lot of all that was, was left to Alice. Why more settled on her? We don't know. We don't get a lot of information on this, um, but they, they marry. And it was very much what more needed. There's this persistent myth that more and a second wife, Alice did not get along. And it's based on two things. One is on Erasmus didn't like her. <laughs> and uh, two on what happens at the end where she she doesn't understand why he won't swear the royal supremacy and she tries to to push him to do so and and so the people take from that that she she just didn't like and it's not true it's it's um, when you actually get in the sources and in the letters and in Moore's anecdotes about marriage or even about his own wife you find that it's exactly the opposite they had a very warm and close relationship and they were very opposite each other but she really did square the circle of his life more was a scholar but he's also full of mirth he's witty he's joyful it's great to have parties he dances alice middleton is also witty and sarcastic with dry humor she's like the very realization of lucian's uh, satire a woman in lucian satire right <laughs> the ancient greek uh, satirist and, you know, she gave as good as she got. Right? And she was uh, very much the equal to more in terms of wit, even though, you know, she comes from a very different world. She is streetwise. She is competent in handling money. More is not. More, of course, has these fellows who are there for bed and board. So the first thing she does is boot, 
this fellow Ammonio out of the house. And mm-hmm. it's the problem. He's the one who's there to view all the events from Joanna's death to Moore's marrying Alice. And he's the absolute worst source you could possibly get because he's mad because he just got kicked out of free room and board and as much wine as he could ask for. Him. <laughs> <laughs> and so he has all nasty things to say about her. And it, it's impossible to verify any of them by any of the sources because it's, um, you know, he's a very interested, uh, very, uh, what's the word, a biased party in the whole thing, right? So uh, there, there's so many tales too about more, uh, in, in, in his wife getting along in different ways and having discussions and 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 the sarcasm and it's clear that they loved each other and they got along well and Moore of course loved his family uh, there's this fellow Jasper really tries to make it look like Moore never didn't care about his family hated his family and it's where some of the myth about his wife come in um, you know they all got along very famously and in a very much loved his daughters there's a time when he's talking to Tom uh, to the Duke of Nor- Norfolk and he had a letter and he's like, I just have to show you this letter that my daughter wrote and it's written in Latin and, and he's showing how, how perfect her, her writing is and her style and her diction. And he's so pleased with it. And then another letter falls and he says, what's that? Well, this is from my other daughter. This one's from my wife, you know, and, and, um, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. So he was very much a family man, but he's drawn away more and more on business. Yeah. Um, and like we mentioned, he, he's chosen by the, the city of London to give a, a speech to Henry VIII's coronation as it as it rides by, and so he had known Henry, you know, when Henry was young, he'd been been to the court. <coughs> excuse me, he'd been to the court several times, and so he was known to Henry at this time. But they weren't quite fast friends yet. That's for later. So Moore is, you know, he becomes an under sheriff, and he does his job with with uh, you know plum and 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 dignity does his job extremely well and everyone just sings his praises he starts settling co- uh, complicated discussions in law between various parties that the, the uh, woolers guilds in antwerp are mad with the city of london about all kinds of fees and export duties and all these things that that they all have to pay and so more works on the compromises for for them and of course increasingly now he's gone from home which is not you know what he really wants to be doing and so as, as, as time rolls by, he's noticed um, by Henry, principally because there's a issue where um, there, there's a massive amount of alum that uh, alum is a, uh, a particular mineral uh, that is only found at the time in the papal states. And mm-hmm. so the popes have a monopoly on it. <clears throat> and there's a whole couple of shiploads of alum that uh, you know, certain merchants were using without paying the Pope his fees. And so more is the one that comes in the compromise that makes everybody happy, including Pope Leo X and Henry. Also, then, then he comes to the notice of Henry and Wolsey. And this is how he becomes a member of the court. Let's backtrack to Henry and to Henry. So Henry ascends the throne in 1509, barely 18, and marries Catherine for love. But then, you know, he's the first thing he wants to do is he's throwing parties, he's giving grants, he loves just giving away money and giving away things. And one of the first things, though, is he needs to get more money. And so he wants Lady Margaret Beaufort dies and Fisher preaches, of course, the the sermon uh, on her death. And just as he did for Henry VII, actually, he was chosen to preach for Mm -hmm. Henry VII's eulogy. And um, he speaks very differently for Margaret Beaufort than for Henry and all the praise of, of women and, and um, virtuous and holy women, likening her to, to various figures in scripture. And now, of course, now, now tamed the kind for the will. And she had gave Fisher a, a lot of money to found a college specifically for the training of priests. 
Fisher will go on to set it up and he'll set up uh, St. John's College, Cambridge, which you can still see today. It's those the mar marvelous um, entrance that Fisher himself would have viewed being built. And it was basically a seminary before its time in all but name, even before the <laughs> Council of Trent, specifically for training priests with regulation and, and, and so on and so forth. Um, and like we mentioned, Fisher, of course, becomes a very holy bishop. He's preaching to the people. He says, if I don't preach, I'll be damned, right? And, um, and we'll talk about his residence when we get toward the end. But Henry then wants all that money that Margaret Beaufort left him. So Fisher fights him in the court in order to get that money because it was given for him. And eventually, you know, Henry makes an agreement that he still wants some of it. But, um, but he wants to avoid the embarrassment of the courts finding in favor of the church. So, <laughs> So Fisher then, you know, becomes, uh, gets on the hit list. He was an intimate of the court of his father, but now no more. Henry makes his disfavor clearly known. And for Fisher, it's fine. I'm going to be a bishop. I don't care. So Henry runs into that. He's got, he has all his father's advisors. Um, Archbishop Warham, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Bishop Fox, the Bishop of Winchester, and several others. And so it, one of the things that Henry wants to do is he idolizes Henry V and Edward, the Black Prince of Wales. He wants to restart the Hundred Years' War and claim the crown of France. And this <laughs> is what Henry absolutely wants to do. The problem is the France he's facing off against is a much different France, much more organized, uh, better equipped than the one that uh, his, his ancestors defeated. So, you know, he, he's looking for an excuse to go to war. And of course, war was brewing. Um, you have the Italian wars and the Pope had made an alliance in the League of Cambrai, moved the League of Cambrai to fight against the French. And so they came, you know, to England, you know, looking, you know, banging on, you know, knocking on the door. And Henry was, of course, very willing. But his advisors, no, his advisors did not want to go to war. So, and Henry is very non-confrontational. He doesn't like to look you in the eyes. He's nervous, even though he's a king and he's supposed to be confident. And he has mm -hmm. great mirth towering height he's young he's handsome he's thin right not not the image we get from the later in the rain which most are familiar with uh is one one of the most handsome picks in england he is um you know and great at jousting and so many things but his council forbids it we don't want you jousting so they send an almoner uh one of fox's almoners a man named thomas wolsey to look after henry now wolsey is the son of an ipswich innkeeper he was usually on the wrong side of the law He's in the local uh, Ipswich uh, records, actually, for keeping an unclean house and fined <laughs> several times. Or not he, but his father. And so Wolsey wants to escape this kind of life. And so he, get, again, goes to the free grammar schools. He learns, he becomes brilliant in Latin, <clears throat> goes to university, takes his degrees, enters the church. And, and of course, he was more cut out for state service. So here he is as... Um, you know, as his almoner, kind of keeping an eye on Henry. And he slowly realizes that the way to favor is to get Henry what he wants. And so he noticed that Henry defies the council and jousts and, um, you know, is celebrated for it. So he decides to help Henry with things. One of the biggest things is getting rid of the way in which his father's counselors kept control on him, the course of the seals, right? You had the, the Lord High Chancellor, had to, you know, keep, uh, you know, seal a document and then, uh, you know, another secretary. And if he refused to do it, technically you didn't become law. Mm -hmm. <coughs> Henry, to get around this, I mean, it's a convention. Henry could have, but he, he just doesn't want to do it. So Wolsey helps him figure it out. Let's call BS on the whole thing. 
and because uh, it is just a convention. And so he has, he has Henry make some appointment and, you know, the, the, uh, the, ex the exchequer or this, the secretary refuses to do it. And, you know, Wolsey is the one who, you know, pushes it through and, and just cites various legal precedent. This is a convention. It goes back to Henry II, of course. And, uh, you know, and Henry gets rid of it. And now, you know, and so the advisors, Archbishop Warham and, and Fox, they resign. And Wolsey is now you know, placed in a very prominent position. And eventually he becomes the Lord High Chancellor because he got Henry what he wanted. And, and the principal thing he wants is war with France. <clears throat> and so he gets an army together, departs, um, you know, sees, sees uh, Catherine. Of course, Catherine had miscarried with a son, which he was very upset about. Uh, first, actually, no, no, the son died after childbirth. I'm sorry, first son. Um, and so, so he's upset, but they spend a night together in, in uh, Plymouth before they set off and they make their way to France where Henry has tremendous victories against the French in, um, in Tarouane and other cities and Tarouane particularly, they call it the Battle of the Spurs because while the English were besieging, the French attempted to relieve the city by <clears throat> throwing stuffs of food over the side of the walls and the English routed them so that all you could see was their spurs retreating. So they called it the Battle of the Spurs derisively <laughs> against the French. Mm -hmm. And Henry, Henry took the city. And it seemed like he was on his way, but uh, taking the city was one thing. And of course, under Louis XII now, and you know, aged, he was Henry was depending on his allies. Ferdinand, uh, who was Catherine's father, was supposed to to take Spanish forces and attack the French from the south. And uh, he went and he took Nevers and he called it a day, and it, which uh, made Henry very ticked off. Yeah. And and we'll see what he does later. So these wars kind of continue, and Henry finds this enormous cost of maintaining this garrison in Tarawain, so deep into French territory. So eventually, he makes a deal with the French, and he gives it back, and he, and he goes back to England. But uh, he, he still tries to make a propaganda plan, and Wolsey, as spin doctor-in-chief, declares Henry to be you know, the arbiter of Europe. He decides if the French go to, to, to Italy or no. Well, the, the political situation changes. A newer, younger, handsome, athletic, and about three inches taller than Henry, uh, Francois, the, the Count of Angoulême, becomes Francois I of, of France. And uh, he's a very much a Renaissance prince. He's, he brings, brings uh, the, you know, the Renaissance to France. He's a humanist. He, has, he collects all these mostly criminal Italian humanists of some degree, like Cellini, the goldsmith, who was wanted for a rape and a couple of murders. Um, oh. But he's a brilliant goldsmith. Don't get me wrong. He's an <laughs> absolutely brilliant gold and silversmith. He, he do wonders with that. Um, uh, da Vinci. Right, who was wanted for, in connection with uh, some bad behavior in Florence um, in terms of, uh, you know, the, uh, the alphabet people type of stuff. Um, <clears throat> you had, uh, you know, a few other people that uh, were just, just not terribly great people, but as long as they behave themselves, they could stay at court in France. And of course, da Vinci distinguishes himself in the French court with so many things. That's, where he, that's why the Mona Lisa is in the Louvre and not mm -hmm. in some museum in Italy is because he brings it with him. Right. And, and so on and so forth. But uh, so Francois is, he calls Henry's bluff. He goes to Italy. And he says, try to stop me. And Henry knew he didn't have the money or the means. And so the, and this was a, a problem for the, his view of himself in the European stage. Henry is very much make England great again in Europe. <laughs> Instead of being some backwater, 
uh, you know, country that they don't care about. Um, the other thing that's interesting that happens is that so while Henry is gone fighting in France, Catherine is technically in charge of the country, and the Scots take the advantage uh, to the opportunity to invade. And so they, uh, Catherine, you know, gets the armies assembled together. King James V is killed on the field of battle and, uh, and dies and they, they take, you know, his coat of arms and everything. So it was actually a better victory than Henry's. Yes. <laughs> right. So Henry comes back, you know, she's pregnant again and everything's looking on the up, you know, until this business with the French in, and then of course, Catherine miscarries. So, Henry and Wolsey are looking for something. They want to have uh, this, uh, you know, peace conference of sorts with the French. Something for Henry to get on the international stage. It wasn't as expensive as fighting a war. And so he, they arranged this, this spectacle, this really absurd spectacle, the Field of the Cloth of Gold, and which was a, kind of like an Olympics slash UN G7, what have you, kind of, kind of conference at the time. Yeah. And um, where, where Henry and, and Francois, they get together, the, the English built like a makeshift city and all their tents are made out of cloth of gold. It's just an amazing spectacle, which now today is an empty field that just has a little signpost to mark the occasion. But then it would have been full of tents and pavilions. And so jousting and tilting and the English had gotten the better of so many of the games. Henry had to spoil it by challenging Francois to a wrestling match, which Francois won. Unfortunately for Henry, even though Henry was very tall, very mm -hmm. handsome and athletic. Um, so nevertheless, they signed perpetual peace. So the um, the, the Venetian ambassador, oh, merciful heavens, what was his name? Well, anyway, the, it's it's in um, Robert Brown's account, uh, accounts Venetian uh, with all the discourse uh, there for this date. And the Venetian ambassador, you know, jokes about the period, about the whole thing. He says these men hate each other. What peace are they actually talking about? And sure enough, Henry and, Fran and Francois signed the Treaty of Perpetual Peace. And three weeks later, Henry meets the, the new Emperor Charles V and uh, promises to make war against France the next year. <laughs> mm -hmm. Present on this occasion were both St. Thomas More and St. John Fisher. So Fisher was present as Queen Catherine of Aragon's chaplain, which he uh, role he filled from time to time. She had several royal chaplains, and and Fisher very often would um, would be called in, especially for uh, if she had more complicated questions or things that, that had to be done. So he, he's there with her as a chaplain. It's the only time he's known to have left the country. And uh, St. Thomas More also as an advisor, because at this point he's been included in Henry's court. So, um, you know, this kind of creates a more complicated situation for Henry as he's got to come up with the money, but he does. And then he gets his army together. Charles V, um, you know, promises to make where he comes to, to England itself. And, you know, and he promises Henry the moon. He'll make Cardinal Wolsey Pope. He will do all these things uh, and repay all the debts that Ferdinand owed and so many things. And they'll, they'll both crush France together. And Henry, who's the heir, of course, to the uh, Habsburg alliance created by his father, you know, again, looks at that and decides to assist. And, and of course, even after Henry breaks from the church, he'll still lean more towards the Habsburgs than he will towards the French. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but Henry VIII and Francois and Charles V, the King of Spain and the empire, as well as the Netherlands and so many other places, they're all in a, in a perpetually stabbing each other in the back, like three ring circus of uh, guys with knives. Really, it, it's a promising peace this year, making war the next year. 
and so on and so forth. Um, you know, Henry helps Charles land in Spain to put down the Comuneris revolt. Last time we talked about how that whole revolt accidentally creates Ignatius of Loyola. Yeah. And uh, during that time. And so the uh, so Henry's still very much powerful in the European stage. And now we should talk about Catherine. So she has been perpetually pregnant for years. She has one surviving daughter, Mary, who at the time when Charles V comes to London, uh, you know, Mary is actually betrothed to Charles V, even though she's six. And that becomes very much the problem. It's why uh, Charles will break that betrothal because she's six and he'd have to wait for another six or seven years, but he's very eager to get an heir right now. So it became a betrothal of convenience. And then of course, uh, you know, he he marries an Austrian nobility and that, that solves that problem for him. But um, in in the meantime, all these, these words breaking up, but Catherine, she's kind of lost her usefulness. It seemed, (laughs) you know, she knew Henry was having mistresses, but now this, this new you know, alliance with Charles V, it gave her importance again. She's now included in so many things because she was, by this time, uh, 40, and it was clear she was not going to have children. Henry was still in his prime. Okay. Yeah. And uh, you know, she's worn out what happens to a woman who's perpetually pregnant, of course. Uh, they're not quite as attractive as when they were 22. Yeah, And this is the problem that Henry's facing and why he's turning to so many mistresses, which of course is not to defend it, but that, that's what, that's the psychology that's going on. Sure. Right? And so now, you know, she's important again until it all falls apart. Henry puts troops in the field in 1523. Charles never shows up. Henry puts troops in the field in 1524. The Duke of Surrey is within striking distance of Paris. Charles never shows up. And then 1525. Henry says, nah, I'm going to sit it out. Charles gets the striking uh, victory over, fr- over the French at the Battle of Pavia, and he takes Francois I captive. Henry finds out, and he's like, oh, and he had no troops in the field. And so he writes to Charles V and says, you know, what, congratulating him on his victory and says, why don't we, um, you know, partition France together? And Charles, of course, uh, just captured his great rival, he doesn't want to create another one. So he decides, he tells Henry, well, if you want your bit of France, you're going to have to conquer it yourself. Henry scrambles to get the money. Parliament will not give another grant because the way it worked in those days is tax breaks were permanent and tax increases were temporary. The monarch mm-hmm. only raised taxes typically to fight war. It doesn't now, people did have to pay feudal dues and all these things. It's not like people paid no taxes, but they didn't pay the kind of exorbitant taxes we pay today to support a state because the king supported on his own revenue. There's no difference between what he spends on a, on a thing of state and some trinket for the queen or what have you. So Henry needs the money desperately to raise the troops. It's very expensive and uh, the commons will not vote uh, an increase in taxes because we're still paying off much of the tax burden for the field of the cloth of gold and for so many other things. So Wolsey, again, a spin doctor in chief, um comes decides to make henry to get a forced loan forced loan is essentially you're going to pay up on uh on penalty of treason this money that the king needs right now and he called it the amicable grant (laughs) (laughs) it was anything but amicable the nobility grumbled many protested but what was worse is the peasantry were protesting because they knew it would be taken out of them to give it to the, to, to the, to the dukes and earls and what have you to pay Henry. And yeah. so it was so unpopular. It was the most unpopular, you know, 
period in Henry's reign. So he decides to call the whole thing off. Alas, I'll never be successful in Europe. I'm just going to have to accept it. And if Henry died right then, he would have been a king who tried to make England grand on the map and had failed. And now something else, you know, happens entirely. Mm -hmm. And so um, more and Fisher, now their relative places. So Fisher, again, is an important personage, partly because of his theological standing. He's written various treatises and, and Luther, he becomes known as the greatest theologian in Christendom. That's, that's how he quickly becomes regarded. Um, Fisher's first literary output was against a humanist named Lefevre. Um, Lefevre argued in favor of the, the, the Eastern view on Mary Magdalene, that she's actually three different people. The, the person in scripture that, um, you know, the adulterous woman and so on and so forth. Whereas the Latin tradition holds she's one. Yeah. Right? She's all one person. And, <clears throat> you know, and that's still an open question. You know, right? it, it's uh, people act like, oh yeah, the Eastern tradition's got it. There's good arguments from both sides. Fisher, I, I wish I had the time. I'd love to translate Fisher's book on this. So he writes a whole book on it. And this is the first time that, that he and Thomas More are known to correspond. Well, they must've met each other at some point or have known each other. A friend of mine paints this picture because they were both very good friends of Erasmus of Rotterdam. And so mm-hmm. a, friend, you know, a friend of mine wrote a book depicting them all sitting around the fire talking, which is a wonderful image, but there's no evidence that that actually happened. It's uh, in a just book, because, did you say? What's that? What book? Oh, it's called Heroes and Heretics of the Reformation by Philip Campbell. Uh-huh. Um, you know, and he doesn't assert it as fact. He writes it, uh, one can imagine, right? Sure. And, 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 it's a, and it's a great image, but it's probably not true because one, more and Fisher ran in different circles. Fisher's much younger. He's a, a young layman running in scholarly circles. Fisher is mostly amongst ecclesiastics. And those who know him well know he can be very warm and, 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 and great, full of mirth and joy. You know, once you get through the, the exterior, which is more guarded on, on the outside. And so he, you know, so he doesn't make fast friends, but once he makes friends, you know, he's friends for life, typically. But so more, you know, they didn't know each other, you know, except possibly professionally. Like I said, they were both present in the field of cloth of gold with Henry. Um, they, you know, but they certainly, this is the first time that, that Moore has a direct writing to Fisher to congratulate him on writing this book, which is written in such good Latin. And it's, uh, it argues the point so well, he says, it's almost like 10 Erasmuses had written it. And then comes the next place where Henry tries to make his, his splash on the European scene. Although this starts before Pavia, but Martin Luther, and now we're just taking this from the English perspective, had appeared uh, in the continent, you know, attacking the church's sacraments, attacking her theology, and now was gaining a good bit of followers and starting a new schism, right? And Henry decided to distinguish himself by, by writing against Luther in defense of the seven sacraments. So he gets, you know, he gets information input from various theologians, including Fisher, but then he composes the book himself and he has more as his secretary. Now, there's, there's some people who believe that, that Fisher actually wrote the, the, the treatise of the seven sacraments, but it's actually not true. It's, it's uh, Henry's propaganda from 1535 that tries to lay that on Fisher. First, they tried to lay it on more, but more yeah. says, I've got all the evidence to prove I didn't do that <laughs> it was because of the preface. The preface gives this thundering defense of the papacy as, as the supreme lord on earth. And, and, but in 1535, it's a huge embarrassment to Henry, who's broken with the Pope and no longer considers him the supreme lord on earth. So now what do we do with that? And so they blame Fisher for it. And then the propaganda is so effective. The Antwerp editors of Fisher's opera Omnia are confused about whether that Fisher wrote it. So they include it anyway as a dubious work. <laughs> 
but when you read the book in Latin, and then you read Fisher's theological treatises, it's very clear that they're different authors. Uh, Henry, the, the treatise, The Defense of the Seven Sacraments is uh, clearly the work of a layman, albeit a well-educated layman. It's not argued like a theologian, right? And you can, you can see that's the difference between reading the two. So Henry, uh, in this defense of the seven sacraments, you know, lays out all the places where Luther erred, but again, the preface is the one that attracts the most attention because of later events, because he declares the Pope to be the, the, the Supreme Lord on earth. So, so Moore, who was a disciple of Erasmus and actually believed in conciliarism because he didn't realize it had been condemned because, you know, council comes out and you don't see those documents for years or hear about them, mm-hmm. but, but latter and five had formally condemned conciliarism, the idea that the council can judge a Pope. So, Moore believed this, not knowing that it had been condemned. And he believed the papacy was a human institution, not a divine one, just like Erasmus. And so he says to Henry, uh, my Lord, you might want to leave that bit out, right? As he's editing and putting together, you know, everything for the book. And he sees this preface and Henry says, well, why? But and he says various things to Henry, you know, about the English law and, um, you know, what happens if you and the Pope should get in some great conflict. And, and Henry's not at all disturbed about this because Henry believes that papacy is a divine institution. Moore does not. In a, in, whereas that will completely reverse in 10 years time. Yeah, right. because um, it's a more because like, you know, going through this humanist training really believe this. And so Henry pushes through and we'll, we'll get to what changes more. But uh, Henry pushes us through and then you get to. Um, uh, when the Pope sees the book, he dedicates it specifically to Pope Leo X. Leo X is all thrilled that, that a monarch of Christendom has written such a learned book. And so he gives him the title Fide Defensor defender of the faith, uh, which the English monarchs keep to this day, even though it was not meant to be a hereditary title. It's actually clear from the bull conceding the title was not meant to be hereditary. Yeah. Nevertheless, it becomes so. And it, <laughs> used, and it usurped to an entirely different sense because sure. the defensor of 1535 is the defender of the Ecclesia Anglicana, the English church, which Henry is the head of, right? <coughs> Excuse me. So, but at this time it's not. So the so the, the official papal co- uh, commendation comes in. Henry's sick, so he can't appear. So Wolsey has the book, and John Fisher is chosen to preach against the damnable doctrines of Martin Luther and, and at St. Paul's Cross. And as he's in, they burn Lutheran books. And as he's preaching, he stops and alludes to the book that there our king has just written. And as he as he gestures toward Wolsey, who's holding up the book, and great cheers and applause. And had Henry been there, there'd been a lot more applause, a lot more cheering, but um, nevertheless, mm-hmm. Colonel Wolsey is a complicated figure. I haven't talked a whole lot about him, except how he got there. Um, Wolsey is a very crafty churchman. Um, you know, Henry decides to increase his authority by appealing to the Pope to make him a cardinal, Cardinal Alatere. And so, so that now, you know, he becomes English and yet a papal representative. At this age, he's basically the Pope's man in England. As such, he usurps the role that the Archbishop of Canterbury should have, and Warham is largely a passive person, and he lets Wolsey dominate over him. And because he knows Wolsey's got the king's authority, and he's afraid of upsetting the king, so he's, he's going to let Wolsey kind of run roughshod over things. Wolsey manages the situation for Henry, and he does so by preventing the formation of factions at Court. And so when, when too many of the gentlemen of the bedchamber are uh, seeming to in- exercise political influence, Wolsey creates an office for them to be special knights and sends them off to France, right? And, uh, you know, he's Clever. always managing 
uh, affairs for Henry. And as long as he gets Henry what he wants, he can get away with it. And Henry's not terribly concerned about it. And so this, this is the, uh, you know, the crux that they puts Wolsey in such a position, but also demands more and more in, in the way of return. And if he can't get it, well, it's not going to be very good. And Wolsey runs into this crisis, um, you know, in the beginning of the, you know, the King's great matter. Right. And so because Anne Boleyn comes in and now it, she brings faction back to court and Wolsey cannot control it or organize it. And this is really the, the problem. So um, Fisher, like I said, becomes this great, great theologian, great. You know, he writes many books against Luther in Latin. Um, very few have been translated. I've got someone who's working on it piecemeal as you can, because I can't afford to get his whole rate. Um, <clears throat> will I do other things? So hopefully one day those will show up in English because they're really good. They were actually uh, used at the Council of Trent in formulating their decrees against Luther because it was the, the most systematic refutation of Luther that had been done. Right? Yeah. Are most so, of Fisher's work not translated? Yeah, most of his yeah, Latin works, uh, so he has um, the defense of the royal assertion against the abominable heresies of Martin Luther uh, and against the book De Babylonica Captivitate, this is the title. They get these big, long titles in those days. So Luther wrote the book on the Babylonian captivity, where he asserts that there, first he starts asserting there's three sacraments, then he jumps down to two and attacks the entire system, argues that the true sacraments have been locked in this Babylonian captivity of Antichrist, right? Then he, uh, you know, and he writes a book, of course, attacking, in that book, he attacks, you know, the Eucharist, or not the Eucharist as such, but the, the Catholic piety toward the Eucharist and the priesthood. He argues, asserts, there's merely this common priesthood of believers, and there's no special priesthood by, by order, what have you. So Fisher writes two books, like I said, against the Babylonian captivity that defends the sacraments, and secondly, in defense of the holy priesthood. Now, that one is in translation, against the priesthood. I actually sell it. Um, not, not to grift so much right now, but mediatrixpress.com for that uh, defense of the Holy Priesthood by Fisher. Um, then, then he writes another one, uh, a treat uh, in the, he held off for a couple of years because he heard a report that Luther might recant, but when it didn't happen, he let go. And so he published, <laughs> so Luther asserted uh, numerous articles and, and these articles, we have the core of his teaching. It's the basis of which most of which um, forms in the Bullock Serge Domine where Leo X condemns uh, Luther. Then Luther says, well, heck with that. He burns the bull, Exerge Domine, burns the entire corpus of canon law, and he reasserts the, uh, you know, the articles that were all condemned. So this is called the assertion of the articles. And so Luther, I'm sorry, Luther Fisher takes the assertion of the articles word by word, and, you know, quotes Luther in full, and then makes massive refutations, about 800 pages in the Latin. Uh, so wow. It's big, dense pages. It's very long, but it's also the key to Fisher's teaching on virtually every subject. Um, you can be fined in there. So it's very useful. I've used it many times in working out his theology. If you don't know Latin, there's a good book, um, although it's a very expensive book, by Richard Rex. Um, I believe he's at Cambridge. I can't remember. But he wrote a book on this subject um, uh, on John Fisher. There is another one, if you can find it, because it's out of print, The Works and Days of John Fisher, both of which delve deeply into the theology of Fisher. So if you don't know Latin, then that's the source I would go to uh, to get in that until those books finally make their way into translation. So, um, but anyway, so that's, that's part of why he's a celebrated figure. So now... Um, Henry, of course, as I mentioned, is soured on Catherine. 
and he still respects her. She's still a very, you know, a woman who commands respect, but she's just not Bonnie and Buxom anymore. And it's not like the glory days when they were first married and it was great and enjoyable. And so he's, he's gone through various mistresses and it didn't have to be Anne Boleyn. It's not because she shows up. Henry's looking already for a reason to get out of the marriage. And be, you know, because uh, it's clear he's not going to have a son. Um, he's, you know, Mary is set up to, uh, to receive education as a queen regnant, but Henry's just not sure. And so he also sets up without telling Catherine, his bastard son by Elizabeth Blount, uh, uh, of um, Lord, Lord uh, Henry Fitzroy sets him up uh, with his own training and education rather in secret royal education just in case he needs to um, uh, unbastardize him to um, legitimize him I couldn't find the word to legitimize him and, and then make him king which is always a dangerous thing even if you have parliament legitimize someone who's a bastard he's still a bastard <laughs> so yep. that, that, uh, in, in that way someone who clearly by fact was and so that opens up the reign to civil war. And that's what you want to avoid. Henry wants his dynasty to be secure. Mary is the obvious choice, but just in case it's not going to work, because it's never worked up to this point for England to have a queen regnant, right? Mary is the one who in the future will pull it off. Yeah. And the only reason Elizabeth can happen is because Mary did it first. Otherwise, Elizabeth's reign would have been inconceivable without Mary. Mm -hmm. Right, because because uh, uh, she showed a woman could pull it off, and she was completely immune to the traditional ways a woman will be attacked, which Elizabeth was very open to, namely chastity issues. And so, yeah. um, anyway, and that was because of the uh, the Duke of Somerset and what have you. Uh, no, 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 uh, the Earl Seymour, sorry, Thomas Seymour. Um, yeah, well, let's, not, let's not do that. <laughs> so yeah, not, not Somerset. Somerset's Edward the Sixth's reign. But anyway, so let's get back to uh, the great matter. So Anne Boleyn. Uh, the, the daughter of Thomas Boleyn. Uh, she's abroad as a courtier. She's in the French court. She learns to speak very fluent French, and she observes how mistresses are used and discarded. So she decides not to become one. <laughs> she comes back to, to England, and she shows up at court. When Henry noticed her is unknown, but she was, um, in fact, uh, you know, very close to uh, which... which uh, I can't remember which member of the nobility is which Earl it was. Um, was it, it North? Was it Norfolk or no? North? It wasn't Norfolk. Um, I it, thought they were related. I think it was the Earl of Leicester, but I could be wrong about that too. I can't remember. It's not coming to my brain right now. It should be, um, but nevertheless, so she's very close to being betrothed to this particular Earl. Oh, and okay. then at some point, Henry notices her, and what happens here is that. Um, you know, he, he, he see Anne. Oh, well, sorry, you're going to say something. No. Okay. Anne is uh, described as as sexy and not beautiful. As <laughs> in, you know, she she's attractive, but in a way that appeals to lower appetites. Um, and she there, there's various other things about her, but she's also very very witty, very intelligent. Um, you know, very, very joyful, and so she's also of what they called reformed opinion, which means you're a secret Lutheran. Is, is a polite way of saying it. <laughs> so um, Henry notices her at some point and then gets Wolsey to, to, to break up whatever's going on with her and this girl. And, and so Wolsey does it. Now, Anne Boleyn, of course, doesn't know that, that this is Henry. So she gets a hatred for Wolsey because she really did like this particular fellow. 
and Wolsey causes him to break it off because Wolsey tells him that he's upset the king's interest in this matter. And so then he gives, uh, you know, he sends his, his ministers to Anne mm. and asks her to become his mistress. <sighs> and she says, no. And, it's, and this is very intriguing to Henry and, and, and turns him on even more. It's Playing like hard to get. This, this is the only way you can tell a king no. Uh, there's, there's, you can't punish someone for not committing mortal sin with you. <laughs> so this is something that, um, you know, Henry just, just moves it, right? And so uh, they, they begin, you know, courting and she tells him she'll settle for nothing less than being queen. So this gets various things in Henry's mind turning. And then he, he sets to work. He sets up this mock trial where he has one of the gentlemen at the bedchamber accuse him of living an invalid marriage into being married incestuously to his brother's widow. And this is against <laughs> the scripture verse in Leviticus. All this has been prepared, right? And so that this, uh, and so Henry then asks Wolsey to investigate and adjudicate the case. And so, and basically grant the annulment, right? This whole thing's a farce in order to get the ball rolling. Catherine has absolutely no idea what's even going on. Henry then, you know, trusts Wolsey to get the goods. Wolsey looks at it and then he's looking at the nature of his authority and he's starting to question um can I do this I don't know if I can do this and he's looking at it it's like well technically I can I mean popes have given annulments for much less and maybe I won't be overruled but maybe I will so he goes to consult John Fisher the very first person he goes to consult and so and pretends it's someone else but fisher knows exactly who it is and what's going on and so <laughs> and, and he goes and fisher kind of shreds the argument from leviticus immediately and points out that the church fathers read the the line in leviticus with that in deuteronomy which says you are to marry your brother's widow to raise children to her name to his name sorry and that this uh, you know so they read it together that if your wife if the wife dies child or i'm sorry the husband dies childless that the brother may marry the widow and so this is how they reconcile the two verses not to mention you know as he looked at the dispensation he said this dispensation is kind of odd there's things that we have to look at here so he gives very much a, a negative answer whereas wolsey was looking for the green light <laughs> and if fisher had given him the green light he would have gone right ahead and granted the annulment. Leo the Tenth was busy in other matters. The Habsburgs would have been mad, but already would have been done. Well, why? So, it's amazing. Wolsey cares, sort of, just in a sense that he's a crafty man. That you right. know, you wouldn't think. I, I, I guess modern me thinking today, I couldn't imagine a certain cardinal, uh, an American cardinal, would really care that much. Right. Yeah, I know, and. Whether it was Wolsey's fear that he was exceeding his authority, a sudden compunction of conscience, or a sympathy for Catherine even, who knows? But I don't think it was sympathy for Catherine as much as a fear that he couldn't really do it. He'd be exceeding his authority. And being overruled would be even worse than not coming up with it. So instead, he decides, he concludes his inquest and decides to refer the whole matter to the Pope in Rome. And he decides he'll use his contacts in Rome in order to help him. The problem was, this is 1527, and you have the Sacco di Roma, which Wolsey does not know yet has happened. So the Sacco di Roma, the sack of Rome, what happens is um, Clement VII is the new Pope. He's another Medici Pope. Uh, you have Leo X as a Medici Pope. Now, uh, uh, you know, 
the, the younger brother is, is now another Medici Pope, Clement VII. <laughs> Not against reform in the beginning, but he just kind of sets into the laxity of the papal court and lets things get worse. And then he gets intervenes politically in the never-ending conflict between Charles V and Francois I, the Holy Roman Empire and the French fighting it out again in Italy. He decides to switch to the French, back the French in Italy. Charles decides, Charles is in Spain, by the way, and he sends his instructions uh, that the armies should be brought within striking distance of Rome just to let the Pope know, you done bad, bro, mm-hmm. <laughs> to put it that way. This is not a good thing. So Rome was largely undefended at, the point, at that time uh, for different reasons. Papal troops have been sent with the French and so they weren't expecting an attack. Charles did not order an attack, actually. And you know, I think he can be sufficiently defended, at least in that regard. But what happens is twofold. Uh, the army's pay went into arrears, so they were not happy. And you had a large number of Lutherans. Remember back uh, a while ago, we were talking about Lansconnects, right? Private yeah. military corps working with Pike and Schott and Calvary. <coughs> and they uh, you know, had their own rules, their own laws. For each regiment, some whole regiments were Lutheran, and you have about ten thousand troops uh, that were Lutheran, constituting these regiments. So when their pay goes into arrears, having listened to Luther and his ministers preach about Rome being the whore of Babylon and so many things, they decide we need to set down on that right now and completely destroy it. And they actually get one of the uh, the noblemen in the in the army to to side with them. Some of them depart and like, well, we can't be a part of this. And so the bulk of this army sets upon Rome and breaks into the city, sacks the city. Clement VII escapes to Castel Sant'Angelo, which is too fortified for them to take. And uh, it's the old mausoleum of Hadrian right across the the Tiber from the Vatican. Uh, You know, great great to visit. You can still see, you know, it was fortified sometime in the Middle Ages. Um, uh, So they can't get in there. Instead, they destroy everything else. Uh, the, The city is an absolute ruins, absolute uh, just devastation. Not, not, not one in, in, in 100 people could challenge property in their house. So much was destroyed, um, all these great Renaissance buildings, because Rome really had become the seat of the pagan Renaissance at that time in many respects. Mm-hmm. That, that's overly focused on the pagan arts, not enough on the mission of the church. And then um, horrible things happen to nuns in the city, of course, and even in the papal apartments themselves, they break into the like the Raphael rooms and underneath the uh, disputation of the Eucharist, which Raphael had painted for Julius II, they scribbled Luther's name in with their swords underneath. Right. <laughs> and so which eventually they sanded out. But um, so this is huge disaster. Now, Charles V uh, wasn't about to let a crisis go to waste. So he re- he returns <laughs> from Spain eventually. And, uh, you know, his troops, you know, they have Clement locked up in Castel Sant'Angelo as prisoner, even though they can't get in, you know, they send messages back and forth. He's basically the prisoner in the city, as long as the yeah. Germans were. So Charles, uh, and so now Wolsey makes his appeal to the Pope, not knowing all this is going on. So now the Pope is being asked to grant an annulment on the basis of uh, the, the dispensation was invalid because it was against scripture. And he's being told to, to grant this annulment um to henry against charles v's aunt 
This is not going to go over one. Now, Charles V really no, didn't well. care about her situation. When in 1525, he broke the alliance, never paid Henry the money he promised after Henry had expended so much on his behalf and um, broke the betrothal to Mary without you know so much as a as, as a courtesy of a, a formal letter going to England. Um, you know, he wasn't worried about what would happen to Catherine as a result of his actions. But now all of a sudden he's worried because family honor. Hey, I, I got to <laughs> do something about this. So he's, he hears about it, and he says, in no way will you grant that annulment. Um, Clement VII does actually escape to French protection at a certain point, and he does, uh, you know, then, then he decides to have a case set up. So he sends one Cardinal Compeggio over uh, to England. Compeggio actually it was beneficed of a diocese in England, so he was understood to, to know English affairs. So he comes over mm-hmm. to set up a court of inquest. And making it look to Henry like this is going to be a very serious trial and they're going to really look at this. Um, and, but he was given a brief by Clement VII. Delay, delay. And if a decision has to be made, just refer it back to me. Don't. Because <laughs> <laughs> what Clement is hoping for uh, is that the traditional tactics of delay will solve his problem for him. Maybe Catherine will die of natural causes. Maybe the issue will go away. And he will not be forced to make a decision that's going to put him in political trouble with the emperor, right? And, and, and so this is what uh, what what's going on. So Fisher um, is, is as a chaplain to Queen Catherine. He's part of the defense. So Henry has basically through Wolsey given all the brief to the bishops. Everyone's going to support this, right? Right. And so Fisher doesn't say anything. So he gives the appearance that he consents. So at the inquest, there is the great scene where Catherine, um, you know, appeals, I've not been your wife for so long. It's, it's recorded in Shakespeare, Shakespeare's Henry VIII, which it, the text of that actually comes from William Rastell, who was a relation of Moore's, uh, was Moore's nephew, and uh, he ran a printing press. And so he had gotten an account of what Catherine had said at the, this, this papal inquest. And leaving Henry somewhat, you know, out of sorts because he didn't know how to respond to her. And he, again, he's not good at, con- at direct confrontation. So, yeah. uh, so the next day uh, they move certain articles and certain you know arguments and Fisher gets up and declares he's not, you know, because he shows the document, all the bishops uh, have, have signed this in favor and Fisher gets up and he says, I have not. And uh, Henry's like, what, what isn't your seal here? And then he looks and it's not there. Of course, Fisher mm. was just merely quiet. Didn't speak up. So the silence veils dissent in this case. And, uh, and he begins on this whole treatise he's worked on, going back through so many things, the church fathers, the you know, theologians. Now, Fisher uh, is a very good speaker and a very deeply learned theologian, uh, and a very much learned in the church fathers. He, um, his writings against Luther, uh, citing the church fathers in favor of the papacy, had convinced Thomas More that the papacy was a divine office and he had been wrong about it. Uh, and so when he wrote Fisher uh, on um, how great a contribution he, he had made in this regard, right? And so the, uh, and Moore and Fisher certainly professionally had dealt with each other more, but they were not still like close, intimate friends. Um, but, but now they were at least much better known to each other. So Fisher now stands up in the inquest and he declares, I'm ready to lay down my life like a new St. John the Baptist. And which, of course, the implication is that Henry would be like Herod, which they didn't take too well. Um, The early biographer records that before this inquest even happened, Henry had asked Fisher to come 
and to get his opinion on things. And Fisher said, well, your conscience can be set at rest, my Lord, for these reasons, because, you know, all these, so he lays down all these reasons why Henry's marriage to Catherine is valid. So let your conscience be at ease. Well, that wasn't what Henry wanted to hear. So the early biographer relates <laughs> that Henry never looked upon him with favor again, um, which, you know, not, not surprising. So now he's really ticked off at Fisher's messing up this whole inquest. There's a whole thing into confusion and, and Wolsey is just like sweating. He doesn't know what to do. Um, and, and so Fisher's able to give this whole treatise and others. So then Henry gets Stephen Gardner uh, to, to come in on his side. Now, Stephen Gardner was a Cambridge man, uh, which Fisher was the chancellor of that university. And Gardner was part of a, a, a association at Cambridge called Little Germany. And this included Thomas Cramer, a man named Barnes, um, you know, a few other, uh, you know, characters, and they were all Lutherans. But the, of course, the official term is we are of reformed opinion, which again meant you were a closet Lutheran in one form or another. And, and likewise, I think I mentioned Cramer was part of this. Cramer was an obscure Cambridge uh, Don who worked as a tutor and uh, actually went to the continent and uh, married. It was, it was, even though he was a Catholic priest, and uh, you know, went in as a, as a Lutheran minister. Uh, his wife died, and so he came back and resumed being a Catholic priest again. It seems it's, it's a weird story with Cramer. Everything about Cramer is uh, the guy is totally wishy-washy in every way. I mean, when he's the Archbishop of Canterbury for Henry, he burns people who believe the very same thing he believes because <laughs> that's the way he's going to stay in power. You know. So um, anyway getting backward uh you know to this so, so gardner is part of this circle and he's ready to, to get royal favor by assisting henry here and you know he says well are you trying to say that there you know he says to john fisher are you trying to say that our lord king is is a herod and i wonder if gardner remembers that several years later when henry does exactly that <laughs> to, to john fisher fisher actually had a great devotion to john the baptist he has on his altar what's called the saint john's head this this mm -hmm. great wonderful um you know uh, bust with the uh, you know saint john the baptist's head on it uh, after martyrdom and that stood you know uh, usually they, they would be a reliquary that would contain a relic or a supposed relic of john the baptist and that was always on uh, fisher when uh, they raid fisher's uh, chancery they, they record that being on the altar right so Anyway, so the inquest continues. It gets bad. Uh, Anne is getting very impatient with, with uh, you know, with this, those, these whole proceedings. And so is Henry. And then at last, Campeggio uh, follows through with the papal brief and refers the whole matter back to the Pope in Rome. It failed. So Wolsey is now on the outs and he goes back. He's Henry. He resigns the chancellorship. He gives Henry his palace at Hampton court, which he had developed. There's a lot of interesting studies on Wolsey in terms of the, his, his love for architecture, church mm -hmm. music, all things that'll take us far afield. They're all very interesting. So Wolsey had built this great Renaissance palace that is Hampton court. You can still see much of it as it was in Wolsey's time today. And it's been added to, of course, very much. Wolsey then goes back to York to because he's technically the Bishop of York to start <laughs> managing the diocese he's never actually sat in before. And uh, in the midst of this, he learns that Henry is cooking up a treason trial for him, which means he'll be hanged on court. So he's writing and writing. Uh, his servant says he riseth not, not even to piss as it were. So I cited in context there. It's what they say, <clears throat> because he's simply writing to everyone to do what he can to obtain the annulment for the king. A lot of people say the king's divorce, and it's important to understand nobody divorced properly until about 1686, 
1692 was the first divorce in England. Mm -hmm. Divorce as in the state coming in and deciding that a perfectly valid marriage may be broken. Right. Uh, Milton was a big advocate for divorce, actually, John Milton, but, it, you know, in, this, in the sixth, 17th century, but it was still illegal. You could only annul a marriage, right, up until that point in the late 18th, late 17th century, you know, is that, so Henry was getting an annulment, not a divorce. And so uh, Wolsey's trying to obtain it, he can't, and eventually he expires, declaring, oh, would that I serve my God as well as I serve my king. Right, famous last words there. Uh, he's out of the picture, and so Henry decides no more clerics in charge, and so he taps his good friend Thomas More. You know, good friend in you know Henry and More were friendly, but More mm -hmm. also was a, kept himself you know a, a certain degree of aloof because he knew what kind of man Henry was. Right, so he taps More to be the new Lord High Chancellor. And now this is where Moore really distinguishes himself. And, and one, first thing off, Henry wants him to advocate for, for the annulment. And he leaves the whole case with, with Moore. And Moore says, I'm not really convinced, but I promise <laughs> as your high chancellor, I'm not going to argue against it. <laughs> and Henry said, all right, because he knew Moore to be a just and fair man. So he was satisfied with that. Um, and so he opens up parliament. And Moore had opened up parliament before, actually in 1523, um, when it was the head of the Speaker of, of the Commons, he had actually asked Henry for uh, for the permission to, for uh, a free speech for everyone in the Commons, so everyone may speak freely without fear of recrimination. And Henry grants it, and that's the and so more actually is the origin of the tradition of the English Parliament today, which is that you should have free speech within the parliamentary chamber. Um, and, and he is actually the origin of that. Interesting. So, um, in the 1523 Parliament. Then there is, um, so now Moore will open up Parliament officially in uh, 1530, and this is known as the Reformation Parliament, not, not from what it starts right then, but this Parliament will continue to sit until 1536, <coughs> and it will carry a see through the English Reformation, you know, to, to its, uh, so it's ironic that Moore is the one who opens it up. You know, Moore, as Lord High Chancellor, is also in charge of repressing heresy. And this is a point that a lot of people are confused about. So Moore writes this book back in the 15, you know, late 15 uh, teens called Utopia. Now, the word itself means nowhere in Greek, right? And so and it's the origin of the phrase we now use, utopianism, an idea where society is perfect. Utopia is a, a fictional account of this fellow named Hithilidae that visits an island of people who are pre-Christian, who have gotten to the furthest point they can get to by the light of natural reason. And so Hithilidae explains the, the customs that he observes amongst the people of Utopia and how they uh, despise gold and riches. And, uh, you know, they used gold for urinals to show how, how much they despised riches. Mm -hmm. And that, uh, you know, that people could speak freely. They had, had a, cert a certain freedom of speech that, you know, you could, there were no flatterers. They despised flatterers because Moore actually did not suffer fools gladly. And he, he was not a, he, into flattery, he hated flattery. So he, uh, you know, so that kind of comes through in the account. And it's, uh, it's like a satirical, but also fictional mocking of society and corruption in the church too, to a certain extent by, you know, through these various vehicles. And it, uh, it, it's not, see, and then the 19th century people picked it up as an apology for communism. And that's definitely not what more is about, right? Because you have this society where there's no private property, um, you know, the, the government is a republic, and which is common, 
uh, is how it's translated. Now, it's actually that's that's how everyone had translated it into English since since you know early in the Middle Ages. The common weal that is the common benefit, um, which is, is correct in terms of the actual origin of the term. But often it's used to mean republic, as in the sense of republican government, rather than the common weal. And so, and this is Moore's notion of it, <coughs> it is that, that it refers to the, this common you know, thing and everything. So what happens then in, in Utopia is that you know, Moore even puts himself in the dialogue to ask questions and kind of mock the whole enterprise. But what he's really getting at is comes from St. Augustine. Right, in the city of God, where for Augustine, there is but the city of God in the city of man. And the city of man will always be hopelessly corrupt. Not only is it not perfect, it can't be good either because of the reality of our nature, that only the city of God is perfect. And that is what to what we should tend. And more is echoing this from St. Augustine with Utopia, as well as the other great book of his, Richard III. Right, where it shows a state that the English state is also not good, even <laughs> though it may be necessary. Right. And so and it was actually turning from Richard III because he thought it would get him in a bit too much trouble that he went to write Utopia. And so there's I and mean, there's many things that we could you know, talk about Utopia would we'll be stuck on it for a long time. So people wonder. So more rights a society where they have freedom of speech and he seems to extol that. So why is more repressing heresy? Secular authors wonder. And the reason is, is more as Catholic, looks at heresy the way any person of his time did, even Protestants on the other side, of it, as yeah. the killing of the soul, which is a far greater evil than the killing of the body. And as a result, heresy, a heretic was worse than a murder. And therefore, any and all means had to be taken to repress heresy. And what has happening is that because of connections in the Baltic and in others, and other connections to England, uh, German tracts propaganda uh, were coming over into England to, to spread Lutheranism. William Tyndale, uh, who becomes a Lutheran, he, he's fluent in German. He translates Lutheran tracts directly into a very fluent and readable English. He gets on a project to translate the Bible into English that, that would be far more advanced than Wycliffe's attempts. And what he does with that is it's particularly brilliant in the flow of the English, but it also does exactly what, um, you know, Wycliffe did in terms of the anti-clericalism, rendering scripture verses in ways specifically in, in a different way than was customary to de de denude the church, essentially, to, to take away verses, any verse used to prove anything Catholic was usually re-rendered sometimes you know violently with the origin of the text and away from the sense of the fathers too and but it was extremely readable english unlike wycliffe whereas john wycliffe in the 15th century his bible um which which his translators were were had so much reverence for the latin they just put it word for word and it was very unintelligible into english although it was something so so this was a very good english the tyndale bible and he starts <laughs> getting ready to cycle it in and then a, a bishop makes the fatal error of purchasing up the entire run. And Tyndale says, wow, this is great. It's going to give me money to do an even better version. And he's going to get the opprobrium for burning the Bible. It's going to be awesome. And that's exactly what happens. The Bishop of Cologne buys up the whole run of Tyndale and burns it. And Renaissance humanists, you know, hold, you know, scorn the whole thing. You're burning the word of God. Mm -hmm. Then uh, Tyndale has all the money he needs to do a better, more efficient edition. Exactly as he predicted. And that 
begins to be shipped over into England. So this is some of the stuff Moore is repressing. Moore writes several dialogues. He's actually asked by um, uh, Bishop Tunstall, uh, Cuthbert Tunstall is a great friend of Fisher, another reforming humanist, to write tracts against, uh, you know, the dialogue against heresies, the dialogue in purgatory, and so many. And the dialogue of purgatory actually shows Moore's characteristic wit and, and humor. Is in the midst of this very serious treatise defending purgatory against Tyndale. He then adds that, you know, he gives this, this little depiction of the souls in purgatory looking down on earth where they used to live. And it says, and they will see their wives now married to new husbands. And they'll tell their husband, their new husbands, uh, that, that nothing they do is right. If only you were like my first husband, who was perfect, even though in life they were wont to tell us otherwise. <laughs> um, you know, rather, rather humorous stuff, but yeah. um, Anyway, so to bring it all to a conclusion, Henry sees exactly where the trouble is. And so now um, he has a new idea. And this was because Anne Boleyn has brought in her chaplain uh, into the royal household. And her chaplain is none other than Thomas Cramer. So Cramer comes to Henry after the failure of the inquest. And he says, see, you're going about this all wrong. In the Bible, we have kings, and we have bishops. But I don't see popes. There's, there's no popes there. Do you see popes in the Bible? I don't see popes in the Bible. <laughs> so rather than ask the pope to give dispensations, which he has no authority to give because he's merely the Bishop of Rome, you are the head of the Church of England. And on top of that, there's some other things that, that, that Henry kind of pinholed for later. Um, there was a trial, uh, the Richard Hun trial which you'd have to look that up to know more about it because we're too much out of time. But the conclusion of the Richard Hunt trials, it was a man who sued the church. And they used a medieval law by Edward I, uh, the Longshanks, if you remember Braveheart, although don't learn any history from Braveheart because it's all wrong. But uh, <laughs> Edward the Longshanks, <clears throat> um, you know, the first was a very brutal king. He was in war against Philip the Fair of France. And, you know, if, uh, Philip was raising money from the church and he wanted to do it too. And the Pope said, no, you can't do that. They said, oh, really? They say, I'm going to do it anyway. And so the Pope put England under interdict. And so he, uh, you know, forbade all appeals to Rome. And it was a law called Primunera, uh, which is, um, you know, a law basically, you can't make any appeals beyond the seas to Rome. It's, it's an act of treason. <laughs> now, it, it sat on the books. Nobody paid attention to it. But this decision decides that the church was in the wrong in this particular lawsuit because of the law of Primunera. And now Henry's been looking at that law. And so now he uses it. So he goes, so, the, so all the bishops are meeting in convocation. Wolsey has fallen. So now Archbishop Warham takes up his role again as the, the Archbishop of Canterbury being head of the, the church, uh, the, the head C in the church in England. Mm -hmm. And Henry's ministers come and declare that they're all guilty of violating primunera by accepting Wolsey's authority, forgetting for a moment that it was Henry who forced Wolsey's authority on them. But that, that's, not, that's of no concern. And therefore they had to pay a fine or their, their, their lives would be forfeit. Now, if they had all resisted, <coughs> if you had a Thomas Beckett in the group that were uh, in the Archbishop of Canterbury, I should say, it might've gone very differently. And, and uh, but instead, you know, the only one to speak out was Fisher. Fisher is the one who opposes it, but a lot of the bishops aren't sure. And they're looking to Warham for leadership because he's the, the bishop, he's the head of, of the, the English Catholic church, right? He's the, the primatial see. So uh, they're looking to him for direction. He's just not giving. He's, he's terrified. He's, he's in old age. 
It's an old man. He's been dominated by Wolsey. Now Henry's coming in declaring their lives are forfeit unless they uh, will do a certain thing. Pay him a ton of money and declare him, Henry, to be the, the head of the Church of England. It was a ruse to neutralize the church, trusting that most of these men are very venal and depend upon royal favor for everything they've received. Except mm. for Fisher. And Fisher is the one who speaks out. And he's the only one. So he so Fisher then when nobody see he can't get resistance to this. So Fisher proposes, all right, well, let's accept what the king has said, but with the proviso, <coughs> preter legum Christi, uh, legum Christi permitat, so far as the law of Christ allows. And so you know, Warren, you know, thinks about it and, he, and he agrees. He says, all right, let's all agree to do that. And that's what they do. And so, uh, the, and Henry at first is, is really angry about this, but he sees how easily the clergy caved and paid the money. So he demands more money and they pay it. <laughs> and so now it's at that point, Henry realizes he's, he's got the church. And so we'll deal with the title later. And, and, and now he's got more or less what he needs out of them. He's, he's neutralized the church. Now parliament begins and, to, and it, bills start being passed through the comments because Henry has a very efficient process of uh, you know, working in the, this various documentation. So you know, one of the figures that arises that becomes Henry's secretary of letters is uh, someone who used to be uh, a secretary to Wolsey, survived Wolsey's fall and made his usefulness known to Henry, also of reformed opinion, i.e. Lutheran, and that's Thomas Cromwell. Not a lot is known about Cromwell's early life. He was an MP in 19, I'm sorry, 1522. Not much is known. He travels to Italy for a little while. He fights as a mercenary for uh, in some of the Italian wars. He comes back, but nobody knows precisely all of his doings, his writings, his flaws. There's a lot of gaps to be filled in by the imagination, but we know him now. And he's very crafty. He's very politically savvy. And he's working the scheme to, again, do what Wolsey couldn't, get Henry what he wants. Because Wolsey could only get Henry what Henry, what he wanted, if it would work within the framework of the church. Now, the exception of more, the men around Henry are working the, you know, this all about. And remember that in 1521, Henry believed the papacy was a divine office and more did not. Now in 1531, Henry questions at the very least or, or positively doesn't believe the papacy is divine office and more does. So Fisher has written many books about the, the marriage to Catherine and Henry being valid. And so and he's going to continue to do so. There's another fellow named Thomas Abel. He was the queen's chaplain. And, you know, she, uh, one of the queen's chaplains, he goes to Spain, promising Henry to get, because he had to get leave to leave the kingdom, right? He promises Henry he's going to get um, things that will help the case. And Henry takes that to mean help his case, but he actually <laughs> means help Catherine's. So he goes down and he gets a number of documents that he sees in Spain. And he writes a book, Veritas uh, Invicta, Truth Unconquered, right? <laughs> as, as the, the, you know, it lays out the whole case you know, in favor of the validity of the marriage to Catherine, Henry reads it. Oh, he's mad. And he loses his, his scholarly composure and actually writes a note in English. It's false. <laughs> this is a lie. And then finally he recomposes himself and then writes a Latin summary at the front of the book. The whole basis of this is false and has Abel promptly arrested. And Abel will rot in the tower until 1537, I believe, or eight, when Henry finally gets around to beheading him. Um, actually, he was—he got the full treatment too. It wasn't like Moore and Fisher. We got uh, 
uh, committed to merely beheading. He was hanged, drawn, and quartered, oh. and then beheaded. So <laughs> it, uh, yeah, bad. So it's Abel, of course, is Saint Thomas Abel is a martyr. Um, but yeah, that that's the future for him. Uh, so, so that Henry's canvassing the opinion of universities, anything that can kind of help him, because he's not ready to make a definitive break, but he puts all the legislation in place. So the, the parliament starts getting uh, stuff on the statute book. Um, heresy. <clears throat> so by the, the Heresy Act, bishops are restrained from initiating heresy trials. It must now be a formal accusation by two witnesses, and any such case could be heard. And it further enacted that speaking against the, the Bishop of Rome or his pretended power was no longer deemed to be heresy. Mm. Then you have the submission of clergy and the restraint of appeals, which basically reinforces primunera. The great, uh, this, uh, you have statutory form to the submission of the clergy of 1532. Uh, convocation is now forbidden by law to assemble except by the king's writ. Convocation is sort of like a bishop's conference. You know, all the, all the bishops in England get together. Yeah. Um, and all its decrees in the future are subject to the royal assent, uh, et cetera. Ecclesiastical appointments and the restraint of anates. So the anates tax, it's a source of so much trouble in the Middle Ages because these, it was actually originally designed for the Crusades and it stayed on the books. Every bishop, the first year of his bishop, the full year's salary had to be paid to the Pope. <laughs> so the Pope didn't much care who a king nominated to be a bishop as long as he got the money. You know, that, that's what developed, even though it was never meant to be that way to begin with. So it was yeah. a hated tax. Everyone agreed it should go, but getting rid of it was so hard because the papal curia depended on stuff like that. So uh, Henry does not abolish Anates. In fact, Anates would stay for two more centuries in England, whereas the rest of the continent, the church got rid of it at the, after the Council of Trent. Actually, even before the Council of Trent, if I'm not mistaken. But um, the problem then was, you know, and the repudiation of Anates. Uh, so the power is the money is not paid to the Pope. Instead, it's paid to the king. It would stay that way. So every bishop in England now would pay the Anates tax to the king, the first year's income, not to the Pope. Um, any acts of dispensation and all these things, all of these um, are going to you know, more and more in detail to, to take away the power of the church. Um, <clears throat> so it, Fisher at one point speaks up in, in, in the House of Lords and Henry has him arrested on, on, a, on a bill of attainder for, for that and then lets him go and uh, the, the, the break will come later. Then as, as they're canvassing, uh, Bishop Warham ordains a priest and without, without royal approval or no, consecrates a bishop, sorry, without royal approval. And uh, Henry says that's a violation of primunere, you know, and, and then Warham suddenly gets a little bit of backbone and he fights back. And he said, this is the very thing for the, the right of the Archbishop of Canterbury, which Thomas of Becket had fought for. Yeah, St. Mm. Thomas of Canterbury had fought for. Gets a little bit of backbone all of a sudden, but then he dies. Perfect uh -huh. timing for Henry. And uh, the Pope had you know, given indications he might consider favorably the case. So there's an Indian summer of favorable relations, which Henry uses to have Thomas Cramer appointed as his Archbishop of Canterbury. Puts him right, his man yep. in the right place. And of course, the problem with Indian summers is they are brief. Mm -hmm. Thomas Cramer then, uh, <clears throat> Henry had uh, an Anne at, at a certain point Anne was satisfied that she'll be queen and had given in and finally slept with Henry and now she was pregnant so now there's a little bit of urgency to do something about the whole deal so 
Cramer decides summarily that the marriage between Henry and Catherine was invalid, and now he's going to marry Henry and Anne. And, and he so does. The Simpsons actually had a funny joke about this where they, they depict characters from The Simpsons in Henry VIII. And so they have uh, Reverend Lovejoy as Cramer saying, so I declare you by the authority invested in me, by you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, more or less <laughs> what happened. And so, you know, and so the marriage happens and it's publicized and then the coronation is put forth. So Moore at this point, so Moore had been brilliant as Lord High Chancellor. Wolsey had never taken his job seriously. So he ne rarely ever sat on the king's bench hearing cases. Moore sits down and for six months does nothing but hear cases. And he's cleared out the, the, the cases. So one day, finally, they asked, is there another case to hear? And they said, no, they've all been heard. And praise <laughs> God, let us adjourn for a month. And so it's hard work clearing all that out. But he did. Although he did make some, you know, offend some people by not finding in their favor and they'll come back at his trial to get him. But in uh, Moore had become, you know, extremely, you know, wealthy at this point. He had moved his family to a new residence, Chelsea, and uh, was still very busy with so many things. Uh, he sets up Chelsea to be, you know, the ideal residence. There's a painting by Holbein depicting them there, which um, I, I can't talk about today. It's going to take far too much time. Um we're already, I don't know how far over, we might as well finish. He, um, <laughs> yes. So so anyway, so he's got all these things in order. He has a private chapel. He hears mass daily and and, and so many things uh, that, that you know, as his devotion deepens and his desire to be free of the world deepens even more. He and his daughter are closer than ever. And, and Margaret too was an accomplished humanist. Uh, his, Meg, his oldest daughter, she was a very accomplished humanist, Latin scholar, Greek scholar, just, just brilliant all around. She'd even published a book, which almost got them in quite a bit of trouble back in the 1520s. Yeah. And Moore had to seek Wolsey's help because the church was going to get after she published a translation of Erasmus's commentary on the Lord's Prayer. And so uh, it, it's the church authorities were going to investigate because it would contravene church law. And so Moore had to go to Wolsey and the two didn't always get along and get Wolsey to license the book to get the church off his back. <laughs> so, you know, she's really brilliant. There's a great scene in A Man for All Seasons where Margaret meets Henry VIII and they speak in Latin at great length and then it switched to, to Greek and Henry doesn't know Greek well enough and, um, and he's duly impressed, right? So, the, so they're, they're really, even though she's married uh, to William Roper, who actually turns out to be a bit of a scallywag. Uh, really? Later. At first, I mean, he's in Lutheran uh, circles. Moore gets him out. And he just deals with the fact he becomes a little bit better. And, but then, and later in life, um, yeah, he writes an account of Thomas More to kind of rewrite his own role in certain things. Cause he, of course, takes the act of royal supremacy, gives no support to More <laughs> during, during the, uh, when it all comes to an end. So, okay. anyway. um, so, so More is in his really good position, but now this all happens and More sees exactly where it's all going. So he formally resigns as a Lord High Chancellor, decides to go into retirement. And that, you know, is the first thing, of course, that made his wife rather upset because now he's got to, you know, do all kinds of other things to get money in. Now since the budgets are going to get a bit tight. Um, but he just couldn't in conscience be a part of it anymore because within all the great architecture of politics and, and religion, Wolsey said, if only I'd serve my God as well as I served my king. More has always endeavored to serve his God far better than he serves his king, but serve his king nonetheless. And now the two were at loggerheads and he knew he could not. And so disappeared from the picture. Now he was invited 
uh, to Anne Boleyn's coronation, and he did not show up. And that was noted, and it embarrassed Anne. Anne was not very popular, we might also add. She was very much hated by the London crowds. Catherine was good Queen Catherine. She bestowed alms very liberally amongst the people and, and was celebrated. Anne was very much hated. She was declared to be a witch um, or harlot or so many other types of things, and which ultimately weren't really fair to her, even though you know she is quite quite you know in the wrong side of this thing. But um, you know, but she wasn't those things. Henry even later in life would come to believe that Anne was actually a secret witch and had cast a spell on it. <laughs> in the 1540s, Henry starts thinking that. But, yeah. um, you know, so maybe it is true. I don't know. <laughs> it just cast a spell on, on, on his passions, without a doubt. It just so, reminds me of uh, sort of Adam blaming Eve for all of his uh, right. sins. Indeed. Um, that's what it strikes me as. And so especially when you look at Anne's fall, um, <clears throat> which... which mm -hmm. uh, yeah, we, we won't get to. So we're going to focus more on the, the final yes. acts. So Henry puts out uh, with Cromwell's connivance, the act of succession, right? And so the act of succession was very simple. It simply said that uh, the king ratified by parliament and it sh it shall determine who the, that the heirs shall be Henry and Anne's issue. Now, both Moore and Fisher were willing to swear to that because kings and parliaments can decide who the succession will be. Right. And that that wasn't an issue for them in conscience or in law. Yeah. Um, and so but then there's a preamble and it, which required an oath. It was kind of ambiguous, but required an oath, um, which would which would imply the acceptance of the invalidity of the marriage between Henry and Catherine, which also thereby bastardized the Princess Mary, the validity of the marriage between Henry and Anne, legitimizing Princess Elizabeth and the uh, the absolute interdiction of marriage within the prohibited degrees with the implication that neither the pope nor anyone else could grant a dispensation and the absolute power of the bishops to annul unlawful marriages without appeal to rome <laughs> as in the king says all right i need you to do this for me okay we'll do that and so they bring in you know all the bishops and and the major clergy to come swear the the act of succession uh so fisher is of course there and expected to, to swear it, and likewise more. <laughs> so Moore asked for some time to study it. Fisher asked for some time to study it. Um, even at this juncture, where, where you know Henry's setting up the game to get both of them, especially Fisher. Fisher, most of all, more secondarily because he, because he snubbed Anne and she's been whining and crying about it, but more of a Fisher, most of all, because he publicly humiliated Henry with his works defending the marriage. So... Um, they study it over and they realize this preamble, if we swear, it's one thing to swear the issue. And this is what uh, Hiller Bellock gets very confused about in his book, Characters of Reformation. He gets this all wrong in every way in his chapter on Thomas More. And he thinks that because More was willing to swear the act of succession, that uh, that meant that he had no problem whatsoever with the marriage. And that's, that's simply not true, right? Uh, it, it's completely wrong. And because Fisher was willing to do exactly the same thing. Right. It's again, you know, he read one thing and he didn't read all the sources and he got very mixed up in it, unfortunately. So, um, but nevertheless, so these acts, you know, all had to be sworn to. They wouldn't do it. So they were put in the tower. Interesting thing happens when they go to Fisher's uh, residence uh, to, to his chancery. They get in. So Cromwell's ministers, because he's been, you know, arrested for treason, all his goods are forfeit. So Cromwell's men go in to take, to take whatever's of value for the king. So as they're going through, 
everything in the the register is declared to be old the bed old probably not replaced since he got in there the servants all had new beds and good good furnishings but he everything fisher had was old this or that other thing he described old years old everything is described as old there's really nothing of value in his chancery yeah then they find a safe and they say all right here we go here's 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 where the goods are so they get three locksmiths uh, from nearby to come in and get this safe open. And finally they get it open. And what did they find? A hair shirt and a whip. <laughs> no gold, no treasure and such. The only thing of, of value they had was Fisher's library, which actually belonged to Cambridge, but they had loaned oh, it to, okay. to the bishop so that he could you know, study and do so many things. Massive, very well built library, a lot of works of church fathers and so many other things. Well, Henry confiscated it. And then, so Cambridge never got it back. Um, you know, so, so many other things that go on with that are t- quite terrible. Moore doesn't get quite the same treatment. Um, and then there's other things that I didn't bring up, like the Nun of Kent. You know, there's no time to talk about that, really. So just get to the nitty gritty. So Fisher and Moore in the tower. And so they pass notes between each other. And, and so they, uh, you know, spend, you know, basically, you know, agree that they should never say anything, that they should both just be silent about the oath, not swear it and not deny it. Right. So because they're not rushing to martyrdom, mm-hmm. but at the same time, they're not going to deny anything. And for more, you know, more is very conscious of this. More, Beckett, Beckett is rushing to martyrdom. St. Thomas Beckett is doing everything <laughs> he can to get someone to kill him. So he'll be a martyr practically um, antagonizing the whole of England to make his point about the independence of the church. And he is martyred. <clears throat> um, more is playing a careful game and likewise Fisher. So Fisher, you know, writes no more, uh, even as, the, as, as early as Henry and Anne's marriage. Uh, he wrote no more on the marriage, of, uh, the validity of the marriage with Catherine. He's questioned very extensively. Uh, there's two books I sell, one on Thomas More, one on Fisher, and they both go through the interrogations that are recorded in the English archives that are conducted by Cromwell or his men, asking, you know, did you do have communication with anyone? Did you send this over the sea? Did you, um, anything they could use to hang them up on trees? And now it's looking for how we can kill them because the longer they reside in the tower, the more the resentment builds against Anne, the more unpopular the whole affair becomes. And, and, and Moore and Fisher might become a lightning rod for further uh, you know, actions against him by the clergy. Uh, Cuthbert Tunstall is very much opposed to uh, you know, what's happening is it was the Bishop of Durham, uh, but eventually he, he falls in the line as well. Uh, and so uh, you know, they're languishing in the tower. So Fisher uh, doesn't have all the books and things that Moore has. And so he's, he's forced to write many times for his homeopathics and for his, his, his botanicals, because that's what he's been using largely to keep him alive. Uh, he also writes um, in a, a, treat, a, spirit, a treatise called The Spiritual Consolation. You can find this in English. At least it's in PDF on the internet. Uh, I'm sure it's in some collection in some book, but <clears throat> uh, which was written to his sister, who was a Dominican. And of course, said on the Isle of Wight and eventually fled to, to the continent. Uh, because she wouldn't take the act of supremacy. And they, uh, you know, it's, it's really wonderful little treats, you know, about the fidelity to Christ, the gospel. Moore had a visitor, which was his daughter, Meg. So Meg goes to Cromwell and she, she swears the royal supremacy, but she does it in such a way. She says, you know, as far as the law of Christ allows. Cromwell, excited by this turn of events, for a moment drops his very astute mind and, and, and fails to catch 
this this what the import of saying as far as the law of Christ allows, realizing that this whole thing was a ruse that Meg certainly did not accept the royal supremacy and she was just trying to be with her father. Cromwell mm-hmm. instead sees this as an opportunity to use her as a wedge to force more to swear the act of succession and, and later the act of supremacy and to, to get, you know, get all this over with. So, so they spend many days and, and having debates like when children, they, they think again to Aesop's fables and uh, that, that which you know, was the very first thing as she read as a child. Margaret taught her, was able to read at about age three. Right. And so they and, and so they on and on again and Moore's favorite, of course, was the, the one, the, the fable of the ape, right, as well as the 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 um, the fox and the grapes. But the ape, it, it was one of his favorite one where, um, you know, a man who was, who was a liar sees an ape and, and the ape says, you know, what, what am I and what are all these apes around me? And he says, oh, why, you're a great king and all these around. These are your knights and courtiers. And so the ape rewards him with all these golden riches. So the other man who's a truthful man sees that this guy lied so foolishly and he's rewarded so he should be rewarded even more for telling the truth and so he says well you're an ape and an abominable beast and all around you are apes <laughs> so the, the head ape tells the other apes to savagely tear him apart and and in the fable from aesop is such and this is such that happens to people who tell the truth to kings right and and this is very much a theme that more picks up on and things like Richard III and Utopia and what have you. And, you know, something that, you know, and why he hates flatterers. So he's back and forth, but, you know, he's having trouble. And it is really Margaret, his daughter, Meg, that, that helps him have the strength to, to continue, even though he knows he's going to go to his death and martyrdom at the end of it. And, and, and she prays with him, they walk, they talk, and she becomes that comfort that he needs. Eventually, uh, the the correspondence between Fisher and Moore has been discovered, uh, which of course they they had burned, and but the fact that they were doing it is discovered, so they're interrogated very heavily, and um, you know, and Fisher is recorded as saying it's a pity that we burnt it because if you'd seen it, you'd see it was perfectly harmless, you know. But there's still nothing they can hang them up on. Now there's a new pope, and he makes things a little bit worse. He uh, Pope Paul the third. Great reforming uh, Cardinal, Cardinal Farinese, um, used to be a bit of bad behavior, now has turned his life around and is devoted to the reform of the church. And although he still has a bit of streak of nepotism uh, with his grandchildren that he, you know, he gets into benefit in his cardinals, which is bad, but um, he, he now, you know, is, is looking to reform the church and he sees part of his reform program, A, he wants to, to elevate the life and, and the works of Fisher by making him a cardinal. And he's also hoping that by making Fisher a cardinal, Henry won't kill him. So then, you know, his agents meet with Francois the first and ask him what he thinks about it. Francois says, I can't tell you about Henry. He's completely unpredictable. One day he might treat me like a servant and another day he'll day treat me like a friend or like a king. I, I don't understand him. You know, and, uh, and, and Francois knew his man. He was unpredictable. So he, he warned them that, that this event would probably just make Henry angrier and not, not alleviate uh, Fisher's position at all, which is precisely what happens when word comes that they want to make Fisher a cardinal. Henry's supposed to have said, uh, well, let the Pope send his hat when he will. Unfortunately, he'll have to wear it on his shoulders. And, uh, you know, it, it, already has, it shows he already has the mind to have these men killed. It's just how it went. So, of course, Fisher is maliciously questioned and to search whether he made any communication with, you know, with the Pope in terms of being made a Cardinal. He's rather shocked by the whole thing. <laughs> anything he expected. So yeah. none of this works. So finally it's all got to be brought to an end. So they do, he has a new act 
the act of royal supremacy, where Henry is declared to be head of the Ecclesia Anglicana, the English church on earth. And, uh, you know, furthermore, denies the authority of the Pope in England. Now, this is the formal break with Rome. And, and this is the vehicle whereby that break happens. It's not the, the annulment and everything that does it. It's this, this one act. And because the Pope still has an excommunicated Henry mm-hmm. for even though Henry is, is broken. So eventually that does happen. But uh, in the meantime, uh, you know, now this act is in play and it, anyone who maliciously swears against this supremacy or thinks against it shall be put to death. So it's thought crime. That's really mm-hmm. what it is before it's time. It's thought crime. You think contrary so now and it's basically getting even deeper can we know fisher and moore's mind because this is getting really ridiculous and and now they're 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 being celebrated for their defiance i can't have that so henry uh you know finally gives up the the traditional questioning through cromwell and in uh and i got to mention one more thing too fisher while he's in the tower gets a deputation of bishops come in stephen gardner cuthbert dunstall uh, some of whom are his friends, Gardner is not, and uh, and Cramer, of course, but you know, Cramer knows Fisher doesn't want to see him, so he stays outside. And mm-hmm. these, these several bishops basically appeal to Fisher to accept the royal supremacy, and they, they basically say, come on, you're making us look bad. <laughs> and Fisher says, alas, the fort has been betrayed even by those who should have defended it. And it was just, <laughs> it's, it's comical in a certain way. Um, yep. but, but, and Fisher becomes the only bishop to stand against henry all the rest go in line um and so this fellow shows up to john fisher and uh, and we know his name is richard rich and he says well i'm the king's trusty messenger and and this is all really regrettable but he just wants to know what your actual thoughts are it's not going to be used against you he just wants to know what you really think and then fisher who's not particularly streetwise and trusts the fact the guy swears on an oath that this won't be used against him he says well uh, since then, yeah, I, I don't believe the king can possibly be head of the Church of England. Done. That's all it was needed. Um, and then Mr. Rich also goes to see Moore. Now, Moore knows Richard Rich. And he also uh, you know, is not stupid. He, he's more streetwise than Fisher, <laughs> who is, is a good bishop and trusted, too trusting. So Moore gives a completely vague answer that can't really be used, although they'll use it anyway. So the next day, Fisher is taken out of the tower, hauled it in uh, with the executioner facing with the axe facing out, and he goes in for his trial. And it's a very short affair because they bring in Richard Rich, who then says, well, he told me X. And Fisher says, but you said it wouldn't be used against me. You swore in an oath. And he said, so? Um, and that, w- which shouldn't have been admitted in evidence, uh, breaking an oath, but it was because that's all they had. So then Fisher is formally condemned. The executioner comes back ahead of the, the carriage, you know, holding the axe facing Fisher. So now it's clear he'd been condemned. And not too long ago, Fisher had seen the Cartusians who refused to swear the act of supremacy um, being taken and, and martyred, hang drawn and quartered and martyred uh, for the faith. So now Fisher prepares himself and, you know, he's, he's brought out and he declares, you know, to, to, that he prays, you know, first the executioner begs his forgiveness. And Fisher says, uh, you have no need to ask forgiveness. Just do your job steadily and watch where the axe falls. <laughs> make sure, <laughs> no, don't make a bloody mess of the whole thing, please. And Fisher, even though so they take, they remove his clothes down down to, um, but, a, but a, a small shirt, he looks like a skeleton. 
and, and, and people of pity. And they say that, you know, a man such as this, if he were in the kingdom of the great Turk, that is in, in, in the Ottoman Empire, and he had committed some great crime there, for shame, the great Turk himself would not have him killed in such a manner that Henry is doing now. And, uh, and so Fisher, you know, declares that he is dying uh, for the Holy Church and for the papal supremacy. Couldn't be any clearer. And that, you know, he prays that the God will send the king a good counsel. And then with that, you know, he, he, he puts his head down and is killed at a stroke. He should have been hanged, drawn, and quartered, but Henry had a commuted account of his age to merely beheading. And so, um, and, and right away, they uh, try to make sure nobody can take a relic. They, they bury Fisher's body in an unmarked grave and they take his head and bring it to London Bridge and stick it on a spike. Now, Fisher had never performed any miracles in life, but he performs a singular one in his death. London Bridge at that time was not what it is today. It was rather a covered bridge uh, that, that went at a great length and there were apartments on either side. And of course, because it's a bridge where there's trafficking, there's horses that of course, leave their poo uh, on the bridge. There's uh, people with, with hogs and carcasses of chickens and other things that are supposed to be dumping the carcasses outside the city. Oh, go leave it by the bridge. So the whole area stank. But as long as Fisher's head was on the spike, it exuded the smell of roses. <laughs> Everyone remarked it's upon beautiful. it. So after two weeks, it hadn't abated. So Henry finally orders it taken and thrown in the Thames and to make way for Mr. Moore. Now, Moore's trial is very well documented. A good bit of the documentation works its way into the man for all seasons. Um, you know, a lot is put up. Of course, Richard Rich comes to give his testimony. And uh, man for all seasons puts in the great line. It's not in the trial docs, but it's a great line. Richard, what profiteth a man if he, you know, gain the whole world but loseth his soul? But for whales. Now, actually, I, I don't believe he became... Uh, had whales or whatever. What happened with Richard Rich, it's actually funny. He survives the reign of Henry. Surprise. He's a very good Protestant in the reign of Edward VI, and he becomes a very good Catholic in the reign of Queen Mary I. And in fact, he gets uh, one of the biggest rosaries you could possibly imagine just to show how Catholic he is. He's even reporting Protestants to the church authorities to try <laughs> to have them burn them. And the there's like, go away. We don't want to do that. There's no reason to burn some poor idiot who's just spouting off heresy. Leave it alone. You know, Richard Rich is doing all this. And then Elizabeth comes to the throne and he quickly reverts right back to being a Protestant and ties an old age. Surprisingly, he makes it all the way into the 1580s under the reign he, of Elizabeth. For some reason, I thought he died earlier uh, under Mary. Yeah, no, he makes it all the way into Elizabeth, okay. becomes a Protestant again and uh, 1580. Six, I believe he died. And so, yeah, he makes it a long way. Wow. But um, surprisingly, <laughs> it, uh, uh, in old age. So uh, nevertheless, um, so more is condemned uh, and this testimony. Other people, there's other chicanery in the trial. People that felt that he wronged them as Lord High Chancellor tried to get it. And he defended himself extremely well against all these things. But finally, he's condemned. And more knows that the condemned may speak without being gainsaid. It's a right that had been conceded for quite some time. Uh, Lord Thomas Aldley, who's the new Lord High Chancellor, grants him to speak. And, uh, and so he begins. He now he finally admits, opens his mind. Henry could not be the head of the Church of England because that title had been conferred upon the Pope for, by their fathers and their fathers before England was even England. 
and Henry can no longer no more be head of the Church of England uh, be, because all of Christendom recognizes the Pope as the, being the, the head of the Church, and so and, and he lays this down with marvelous marvelous oratory, and and the council is disturbed and they're moved because, I mean, he has to be pronounced guilty, but it's a challenge, and they can't answer it, and so Oldley comes up with with a particular bit of English positive law. The law is what the king and the parliament say it is. <laughs> Done. <laughs> so then Moore is then, you know, taken and eventually, you know, he is executed. Um, his head is also placed then on, on London Bridge. And the uh, not long after, his daughter Margaret rose up in the middle of the night, risking her very life pays off the, 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 the bridge warden and receives her father's head and brings it back with her uh, to, to, to lay to rest, um, you know, as he was also beheaded. So then they begin, you know, destroying, you know, destroying Fisher's legacy. They, they, they um, try to besmirch him. Uh, Cromwell writes to Erasmus, who's on the continent, who was very good friends of both Fisher and Moore. And he writes to Erasmus and uh, lets him know, by the way, nudge, nudge, Wink, wink. Your uh, Cambridge pension and your Oxford pension will still be paid <clears throat> if you shut your trap about all this and don't ah. embarrass the king. <laughs> and that's essentially what, what Erasmus does. He doesn't cry out, whereas all of Europe is, is crying out over the, the murder of Moore and Fisher, uh, the greatest statesman and the greatest bishop in, in all of Christendom. Um, in, until more recently, the only cardinal martyr unless I'm mistaken, uh, maybe is still the only Cardinal martyr actually, but there might be one I'm not aware of. So at least until recently. Um, then, uh, yeah, so Erasmus keeps his mouth shut. Uh, they, and like I said, they try to, to the, the 1521 preface to the assertion of the seven sacraments or defense of the seven sacraments is uh, an embarrassment for Henry. So now they have to do this. So they try to blame Fisher's the one who wrote it. Fisher's the one who induced the king to put all this stuff in there, right? Um, and, yeah. and they're, you know, held formally to be traitors uh, to yeah. the crown with under this new definition of treason, which is thought crime, essentially, uh, and so on and so forth. So that's, uh, you know, that's how it, it, it happens um, and, and how they gave their lives as glorious martyrs, you know, both for the unity of the church and for, you know, the... Um, the rights of the papacy yeah it's a beautiful story what a terrible friend erasmus turned out to be yeah uh, no only doubt for, only looking for money at the end i guess that's sad. And he was always in need of it yeah interesting he was a priest wasn't he was he not um he was a cleric i don't recall if he was ordained um i tend to doubt it but i could be wrong I'd have to double check. As far as I remember, he was he was tonsured, but he wasn't he wasn't actually ordained for the priesthood. Gotcha. Well, so that sounds like we've wrapped up uh, the story of the two of them. Um, thank you, Ryan, for coming on to discuss it uh, and explain the two of them uh, and correct Belloc. I like that uh, <laughs> little element of it. Um, so I love Belloc. I love his prose, but uh, there's things he gets wrong. You know, yeah. and, and whether because he didn't have access to source to primary sources or he heard some idea and got that as his idea or he just kind of looked at it, made up his own mind on it. I have no idea because he doesn't give us the sources. so It's hard to determine. Yeah. And so uh, you said a bunch of different 
books um, that you, that uh, Me Nature Express publishes. Uh, will you um, tell us again what those are? So uh, uh, certainly on this subject. Um, so I have uh, Saint Thomas More, uh, Great Man in Hard Times by by Reynolds. I also have uh, by the same author Saint John Fisher, uh, Humanist Reformer Cardinal, or no, no Humanist Reformer Martyrs the subtitle. Sorry. Um, then there is uh, St. John Fisher by McNabb, Father Vincent McNabb, the Holy Dominican in the early 20th century. So McNabb's book tends more toward hagiography based on sound history. It's a wonderful little book, almost like a Shakespearean play. It's, it's so well-written, but uh, again, to, towards devotion. Reynolds's book is a biography from a Catholic perspective, very well-written, very well-sourced, and, and very Catholic, but also a proper biography. And the same with Moore. So, um, and then, you know, and then I also have a book, Franciscans in the Revolution, which covers, it has a big long chapter on Catherine of Aragon, actually, which is very good, because she was a, actually a third order Franciscan. Okay. So, um, so Franciscans in the Revolution is another good book on this subject. And finally, um, I would recommend another book on uh, Thomas More. Uh, it's by a secular author. It's called A Daughter's Love, which is, um, where is it? Oh. yeah good by john guy or john gee not actually sure how you say his name um i'm not sure if this is still the cover they run with but it's a, it's a biography both of thomas and of margaret and it does a great job of uh you know covering so much of what humanist education was of margaret's achievements and so many things and so and much of the life of more actually it's very good that way okay yeah that, awesome thank you again for coming on uh, I'll send people or let's send the people that way to get any of the any number of those books, whatever interests them. Don't have most. the last one in case anyone's wondering, but I do have the other ones. I okay. mentioned. Gotcha. Sounds good. Um, please help share this video, like, comment, and again, share so we can get this to as many people. And uh, you're also on uh, the what is it? Restoring the Faiths. Um, with the rundown. The rundown. Yes. The rundown so check out the rundown as well anything else um not at the present um i'm still working on on various things audiovisual i do have a subscription service on mediatrix press it's just a book club and uh, uh for ten dollars you can get a book a month an ebook plus access to all the audio and any uh anything in the e-library in terms of articles or uh audio still working on getting the video working there's like, you know, months and months worth of videos. I'm still trying to get done and get loaded up and get, get finished. And, and so as I'm moving right now, so that's been slowing everything down, but um, anyway. Gotcha. Okay. Sounds good. Well, thank you again. And uh, please uh, subscribe to Plotlines and have a wonderful rest of your day, guys. Thank you for listening. Bye. <laughs>